With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. What up? All right, the show started. Garrison? Hey, we're going to be talking about uh, Canada again. So, yeah. Um, and to discuss Canada and politics and uh, the happenings here, we have another journalist who uh, writes for, I believe, uh, Anti-Hate uh, Canada and like the, the, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and also Vice, I believe, right? Yeah, I've written for Vice. I'm currently uh, researching full time. Um, I'm an extremism researcher for um, it's a new initiative called the Online Hate Research and Education Project. Uh, it's actually partnered with the Canadian anti Network, and it's it's under the uh, Newberger Holocaust Education Center, which might be renaming uh, very soon. I'm I'm very excited for you guys to get into a Twitter fight with James Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can't wait. <laughs> so yes, uh, Dan here has joined us to talk about Canada because I, I've gotten a few messages about this thing that's happening. My mother, who's in Alberta called me a few days ago to talk about this thing that's happening so it's been it's it's i'm getting a lot of things and it's definitely worth discussing specifically on some of the rhetoric that people are using around this so i'm actually i'm gonna i'm gonna hand it to dan to talk about what like how did this thing like what is it and how did it kind of get started yeah uh well so 
Garrison's not alone, by the way, for anyone not in Canada. Every single person's mother uh, in the entire country is called and asked them about it. I, I, ju- I just got another message literally right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally this second, I just got another the one. The moms of Canada have been activated. The moms of Canada have been activated, but not in exactly the same way that it, they're being perceived to be. Yeah, not all the ways. So uh, the, the uh, quote-unquote trucker convoy, uh, which I might get into a little bit later, but I'm kind of like against even calling it a trucker convoy. Yeah. Uh, it was started on uh, January 14th uh, and by a former uh, Wexit party, now called the Maverick Party member, Tamara Lich, uh, and a group of like very active uh, far-right uh, grassroots protesters who yeah. do a lot of, of organizing like this uh, and most of them uh, most of their activities kind of go back to like 2018 yeah they go back a decent a decent amount yeah like this uh, I mean uh, th- there's links to people that have been doing it in, in the 90s uh, in Canada's movement right now but uh, a, a non-binding motion against uh, uh, I think it's a M183 a few years ago really mobilized people and it, it's kind of been more consistent since then of the same groups of people yeah, uh, that's that's what we talked about in our first Canada yeah. episodes ab- about kind of how we got to that point. And now, like, those same people are still kind of behind what's going on right now. So, yeah, there's this uh, alleged caravan of truckers, of all the truckers in Canada, <laughs> going go- going to Ottawa. Um, so statistically, and, and all the truckers in Canada. All the truckers. Um, <laughs> and so this thing was kind of originally organized by some, like, known far-right figures and the people associated with, like, the Canadian Yellow Vests, which kind of died down. But mm-hmm. it didn't die down, it just morphed right uh, morphed into a very strong anti-vax uh, presence in canada right now the anti-vax movement's getting a lot of popularity in canada and it's run by these guys who are doing wexit which is like west exit but for like it's, a, it's, it's like for alberta and bc to m- go away from canada because the rest of canada is too liberal um so wexit and the yellow vests have really changed all of their focuses into this anti-vax thing as a way to do recruiting and they've prompted this kind of movement of truckers going to ottawa um, for a few specific reasons, which I think uh, Dan probably knows a little bit more about than I do. Like I, I, I know the gist of it, but uh, you, you, you've been focused on the on this slightly more than I have. Yeah, I guess the main reason is it works. Um, like just from the perspective of of getting attention and, and being able to get a message out. Um, there's been a lot of traction on this that these groups don't normally get. I think the last uh, trucker convoy, um, that uh, was done under this uh, sort of umbrella. It had like nine, I think, was the total amount of like trucks that made it to Ottawa. The last time this was tried to be done, it was basically the same demands and the same uh, reasons. So this one was started on, on January 14th, and it didn't get that much buzz the first couple of days. The original goal was set at $100,000. Uh, I don't remember the exact time, but once it hit that pretty fast, and it hit yeah. the first million pretty fast in ways that like these fundraisers really, really don't. Like the last big one, we saw in Canada that uh, was quite alarming in that fast capped out at under $400,000. And that was um, for a barbecue, (laughs) uh, for a barbecue that got defied uh, protests last year and uh, ended up getting like all its its, uh, pad doors shut down. So there's a lot more money now in this one. Yeah, because this this fundraiser, which was supposed to go like hand in hand with these truckers protesting the vaccine mandates because they're upset that they're not allowed to truck into these states because they're not vaccinated. So they have decided to all truck into Ottawa as like a pseudo strike slash like blockade type thing because they're saying that we're not going to do our jobs and we're going to kind of block off access to these roads. Um, 
until this mandate is is removed. Yeah. Now, of course, the the funny thing here is that the mandate that to enter to not being allowed to enter the states to do your trucking routes that's not a mandate by Canada that's done by that like that's the rule in the United States because you're entering the United States there the states is actually the ones doing the blockage the Canadian government has no control over this yeah it's the, not like it's not actually the thing the 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 way to get the message out and support is incredibly effective because something i think like 28% uh, there was a survey recently of Canadians are against the mandate, which is like really huge um, for like Canada's anti-vax movement to kind of get that like support. And, and like a lot of people are mobilized too by there's a, a trend of posting. Uh, it started on 4chain in 2018, but it's getting revived a lot again now of uh, people posting like empty grocery stores. Uh, even a conservative yeah. member of parliament recently posted an empty grocery store uh, and asked for people's emails to try to like change the laws. Uh, it turned out to be from the UK. It was a stock photo. Uh. <laughs> and there's been like e- even like the stores themselves have to, like, had to like come out and make statements being like no yeah, like, this we, isn't us. we're not we're not empty we have we yeah, have or things. like we are in the process of we restocking that's yeah. happened in the u.s too where it's like oh, yeah. yeah we were literally emptying that shelf to move stuff we've to another shelf so and we've like, uh, yeah. had really bad snowstorms uh yeah. in ontario for a like, lot of the the real photos of like empty shelves, and it's just like, oh no, the salads half out, and the store just make a statement. And it's like, yeah, we had two snowstorms a day in a row, and our truck arrived today. But like the, the narrative that they're trying to push is like these these mandates are causing these shortages. Um, and it's the, working. The fact, and the the propaganda is working, even though it's all on a false premise. Because first of all, it's not like that. that those aren't that's, that's not costing that. And second of all, p- complaining to Canada's that's not. Canada's not the one who's making the restrictions. It, the states is the one that's that blocking you from doing yeah. this. But but it's it's not actually about these issues. It's that's not the reason why you're getting all these people driving to Ottawa because there is a lot of people. There's not many trucks, but but there is there is a decent amount of people. You know, it's that that are that are going this because it's not it's not actually about these specific issues. It's this general. Um, like seething hatred of Trudeau and like a generalized grievance that has gotten this broad support. It's gotten enough financial backing. The fundraiser is what like like, like over six million dollars now. Um, Jesus and it's it's not like it's just what it actually is is an incoherent kind of intention just to go to the capital and cause problems. Right. Yeah. That's, some, that, some that's of... what they're actually that that's what like the the underlying thing is for yes. a lot of a lot of the of like explaining why it's gotten so picked up some some official demands like have been put out uh and they would be even more confusing like to read than like some of them are a couple of the most recent ones are just very general like stop this divisive nature that our government is imposing kind of thing like i'm paraphrasing but it's it's really quite bland um some demands from um tangential groups involved one they say they won't leave until trudeau steps down uh, others say at one point said until every politician stopped down step down. I think that was when before someone kind of pushed in more realistic goals into the movement. But like in terms of like what they're talking about for like the rhetoric surrounding it, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric around the the sentence being like, we this can be our version of January 6th. But like they're saying that like in a good way, like that's that's the thing that at least some of the organizers and then it's being carried out into like the generalized rhetoric is that this this should be our own version of this which is which is interesting on on a few ways but like also like this would not have been said like seven months ago 
but it's being said now, which means like there's been a shift in how January 6th is being viewed. There was this initial like really distancing, and now it's like it's becoming almost like more acceptable to acknowledge that it was maybe a good thing in your eyes. And so like that's an interesting rhetorical shift that that's been going on. But then it's also concerning on just like a regular level to be like, yeah, these people wanted these people are saying they want to do their own January 6th. That has obvious like physical implications for all these people trying to drive to Ottawa, um, do either blocking off roads or just like making the government inoperable. Yeah, uh, I, uh, a co-streamer or well, a streamer um, in what's called the Plaid Army. And now that's sometimes kind of just being rebranded as like Diagonal Network, uh, quote unquote which we can get into more, but it's, it's going to be sillier. Uh, yeah. They're, they're kind of their own, they're their own issue for later. Yeah. They're their own issue, but uh, it was um, uh, one of their streamers who is very tangentially connected to like a lot of the, um, the far right people that are involved in this protest movement leading up to it. In fact, Pat King, who was officially uh, one of the organizers of the convoy um, until he wasn't. And then he was again, that was a whole dramatic thing for a day. Like he streamed alongside Plaid Army guys before. Um, so someone on Plaid Army uh, said, uh, and I would quote, I would like to see our own January 6th event, see some of those truckers plow right through that 16 foot wall. And on January 24th, that was put up on CTV News, made alive, and it's kind of scared a lot of people. And I think at that point, former conservative leader Andrew Shear had already voiced support for the convoy. Yeah. There have been a lot of other like members of parliament stuff voicing support for the convoy. Uh, some of whom really didn't seem to know like what was involved and really f- just kind of heard ten- like in passing, oh, it's against these mandates and I oppose these mandates too. And it's like, a, if it's against Trudeau, you may as well sign on because it's going to help you. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. You're going to help your political career. Yeah, that, that, yeah, it's completely true. So h- have they actually started like blocking roads or is it just a bunch of random people driving down the sh- like driving? <sighs> So there's so there's far. a few different like converging points of the convoy. I think I would say probably the biggest one, um, but it's it's hard to kind of keep track. Uh, started in British Columbia and it's going so to this. I'm sure not everyone knows like Map of Canada. So like British Columbia is like our West Coast. That's our our California. Um, and Ottawa is it's close to the West uh, and it's in Ontario, uh, but it's on the border of Quebec and Ontario. Uh, and that's where our parliament is. That's our capital city. So. It's uh, coming from every which way, but I think the largest contingent comes from British Columbia, and it just basically goes eastward to Ottawa, picking up people along the way. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 heading in that direction. Um, how do we know about? I, I know some people have kind of already, some people have kind of already sort of arrived in Ottawa, but most mostly yeah. people are expected to more arrive in the next like. Well, I, we're we're recording this Thursday night, so this episode will probably come out on Monday. Um, people are expected to arrive on Saturday. Is is the day that people are expecting like everybody to be there? Uh, at least that's yeah, my understanding the, of it. The convoy itself arrives Saturday. Um, there are people like coming from further east uh, who yeah. are like staying overnight in town and and kind of just showing up at the parliament event. So like by by all accounts, uh, the parliament show will probably be a lot bigger than the so far. Uh, which so, yeah, I, I guess we haven't mentioned numbers yet. Sorry numbers nor like what what they actually really plan on doing once they get there because it's, it's been so much talking about like why this got started and what's the like driving motivational factors but yeah like yeah. Their, their goal is to get to a place and do a thing and and that's the that yeah the thing is unclear that's the unclear part the thing is mostly unclear i have seen discussions about like blocking off like doing like a ba- trying to assemble like a trucking strike 
um, and then like blocking off access so that the government's forced to obey their demands or else like the country will shut down. Um, then some people maybe are just kind of doing it as like a one day protest. It's, it's it again, it is, <laughs> it is, it is pretty unclear, but people are headed to there. Um, what, what is the, what is the numbers at least from where we can see like online and stuff? So their numbers have been the number of 50,000 people, 50,000 trucks. Yeah. 50,000 50, people. 50, people became 50,000 trucks. Uh, yeah. Very quickly, um, and that same number, I think Rogan repeated it. I know um, Joe, Joe Rogan said it. Yeah, yeah, Joe Rogan said it. Theo Fleury went on Laura Ingram and repeated the fifty thousand number. He said fifty thousand truckers, not trucks specifically. Um, as far as I know, Theo Fleury has no official involvement with the convoy <laughs> and is just a fan and is just repeating some numbers that like organizers themselves have kind of echoed. Um, this is also complicated for me because this is very troubling in a lot of ways but also i'm a huge fan of the song convoy <laughs> so this is really devastating please continue it's all right yeah so canada's far right protest movement has kind of a habit of doing this uh in february of 2021 uh kellyanne farkas who's like a mainstay uh of the anti-mask anti-vax movement uh and in between what i'm talking about and right now I actually dated pat king for a while uh, who's kind of the most uh, outspoken person in organizing the current convoy, claimed that 100,000 people were coming to Parliament for uh, what was then like an anti-mask demonstration. Um, before the event, that outlook changed to 50,000. Uh, and I was actually there. Uh, it looked closer to like 200 people. I, I had friends that had counted like 170 people, so not quite 50,000. Uh, <laughs> for all in intents and purposes, the current one will be longer. Um, Reporters doing great journalism along the, the way have estimated up to like 400 people so far, um, including, I think, 15 trucks uh, outside the Bass Pro Shop in Toronto this afternoon uh, was counted. Side note, uh, if nothing else, got to give them points for stopping at Bass Pro in Toronto. It's a pretty sweet Bass Pro. <laughs> I do love a good Bass Pro Shop. My favorite is the one they built into the giant pyramid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Obvious, obviously. Nashville, baby. So the, the, the Bass Pro in Toronto, if you're ever in town, Robert, it's the only place around that I've been told that sells subsonic 22 rounds. So if you're like oh, in the woods, great. so if you're like in the woods, but like you don't want to like scare your neighbors because the woods aren't yeah. that big. Yeah, Bass, I used to have some Toronto. friends and I used to go shooting in a suburban neighborhood with 22 because it's technically. Well, don't, don't well, do the <laughs> you come definitely uh it was we there was it was legal oh right canada doesn't i do it. not i don't endorse the <laughs> might have to might have to cut this part out for, for regional sharing no leave this all in <laughs> just a bunch of words make it nonsense with bleeping please continue <laughs> yeah so only 15 uh trucks were counted by uh cbc at at that point um and like yeah. videos and stuff have been slightly like, yeah, short the, yeah yeah there might be there might be a couple dozen slightly short but i think by the time by saturday i think there's a decent chance that there might be maybe around 50 trucks to 100 trucks if there's um, anything more than like 500 it, all of the media footage will look like there's 50,000 that's enough trucks absolutely that, like, nobody's camera is going to be yeah. able to show the extent of them realistically and then, yeah, yeah, once they're there, it's unclear what they want to do. Some people just want to do the fuck shit up thing. Some people want to carry on the tradition of, like, what the most of the anti, like, uh, vax, anti-mask protests in Canada have been, which have been pretty big, but it's been, it's been, it's been mostly standing with signs. 
Um, so <laughs> it is, it is, it it is really unclear because again, most of the truckers in Canada probably are not going to be there, nor to necessarily endorse this idea. Um, nor is like right it's because it's, they're pressing the, the, the their their whole initial issue is not even based on an actual like thing so it's it is I, i'm not sure how many people are really going to show up because i don't know even how specific it is to an issue um one one just really fu- interest funny interesting thing that i thought about is like with with some of these people um you know talking about you know going to ottawa and not leaving until the mandates are dropped or the entire government resigns mm-hmm. like these people who are talking about this like like blockage and shortage and stuff are also like the same people who get very angry at indigenous people for blo- blocking off roads and trails um for like oil and like pipeline protests <laughs> a lot of them yeah some of them some of them are uh, indulged in pretendian stuff uh, like pat king uh, back in september um kind of went on like a, a kick where he just let a lot of people uh, believe he was indigenous and claim so and not correct them. That uh, is, and, that is weird. And a family member of him went on Facebook and like bombarded people with information that he was not in fact indigenous. And it was all uh, very weird. And in, a lot of people yeah. held him to uh, comments in the past where he talked about Anglo-Saxons having the strongest bloodlines Uh yeah, so, that is. I think good stuff. Pat Pat King probably deserves his own little deep dive on one of the pods. But, but yeah, like it, it is. It is like with all the people talking about blockades and stuff. All you, most of them coming from like the western side of Canada. Um, it is. It is. Uh, yeah, like you're you're talking yeah. about all these things and like th- there's really big pro oil sentiments in all of the in all of this crowd. Uh, yeah, because a lot of it is connected to financial and political stuff, not necessarily even this vaccine issue. It's been more like a symbol to just represent their general kind of upsetness at um, at the way <laughs> at the way things are going for them. It's interesting to me. So, so when I first heard about this, my I was I was like, oh, okay, so this is going to be like the Chilean truckers, and I was like, okay, well, this is really bad. But it's like it's interesting to me, like how few people they've been able to mobilize. Like that's like not a large number of truckers. Like it's it's tough because they actually get. Yeah, it it looks like a lot of like vehicles when you when you see like footage, uh, photos and videos. Like like in I'm in like a lot of like Telegram and Facebook groups of just people just like sharing pictures and photos um, of the rally of the convoy passing through their town, and like it it's like what Robert said. Like it's when it fills up both sides of the camera. And you have a, a wide depth of field. Yeah. Like, it looks huge, and it's it's really hard to count. Uh, the money is preposterous. Uh, also, side note on on the money, um, it the funds were frozen uh, a few <laughs> days ago on the twenty fifth. But today, one million dollars was released back to them Oof. because they they gave GoFundMe a pretty clear plan, allegedly according to GoFundMe for for how they're going to distribute it. Uh, the rest of the it's it's I think it's like six point seven million now. So the rest of the five point seven million I think is still frozen. Okay. Well, it is. It is cool. so. It is so much money. Um, yeah. We should do something like that. And they could. Retire. They could actually buy truck nuts for 150,000 truckers, which is the most I've seen them guess. Truckers are coming. Uh, they could buy twenty dollar truck nuts off Amazon for all of them and still have the vast majority of their funds left over. Yeah, but see, that would be an act of actual heroism, and and they're not going <laughs> to do that. So, yeah. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is one to like acknowledge that it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Acknowledge the tactics that they're using in terms of trying to go into an urban area and block off uh, like trade routes, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to talk about like first of all, it doesn't matter that like 
the fact that this is happening is divorced from any kind of direct cause, right? Because their their actual grievance is false, and their grievance doesn't really actually matter. It 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 just need they there needed to be some kind of cultural or propaganda push in order for this physical action to happen, and that's been done. It doesn't even need to be like coherent. Um, and then escalation, people driving here, doing this thing. And then I know there was this one interview, um, I forgot on what news channel, but they interviewed this one trucker guy, part of a, part of this con, uh, part of this convey in my hometown of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, and he's, he said, um, I advocate civil war. If people don't want to step up, we have guns, we'll have some, we'll stand up and we'll bring them out. But like, so that's the quote. So like in the fact that you're just openly saying I advocate civil war in relation to this movement is like my goal is my goal here is being like people fantasize about Canada as being a place to escape. You know, Canada like Canada is like the other from the states. And like, no, it's the same like we are like we're you cannot escape away from fascism. There is no really there is no real away right now in there's terms no of like safe ground. Yeah. There's no safe ground. It can spread to where you are. And for people living in Canada, when you have people on the new on like global news saying I advocate c- civil war within the context of this of this like um you know convoy movement, it is it is an actual thing worth paying attention to. It is an actual problem. It's it's huge. And earlier today, uh, and I, I might pronounce his name wrong, but uh, Del Manukdok uh, from CBC Toronto uh, tweeted a story because he, on behalf of CBC, uh, contacted. Uh, an actual organizer of the convoy. They have different regional organizers and, and their website lists them all. Um, yeah. And it had Pat King, funny side note, it had Pat King listed as an organizer while their GoFundMe had a statement saying they had no connection to him, um, <laughs> which was very funny. Uh, but uh, yeah, so CBC Toronto contacted them and, and the guy responded, enough lies, you quote, slave-blooded traitor. Uh, evil will get its due in the end. Uh, and after a little- blooded Yeah, after, Oof. yeah. After oh, a back, boy. yeah. Oh, after boy. a back and forth, uh, a very brief back and forth, uh, and just like a couple questions, uh, the organizer ended with, "You know, you toe the line for the global corporate coup taking place under the guise of public health. You can't be that dumb. Traders will swing in time." Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. I do think. Americans don't fully understand how much the anti-vax movement is tied to far-right politics within uh, Canada. And it's like been like the driving force of far-right politics for the past two years, and it's gotten so much larger. Um, it is like it is it is it is a thing. Like when when you have when you have people on camera saying we want to January sixth, I advocate a civil war, uh, mm-hmm. talking about not leaving until the government either resigns or mandates are dropped, and then threatening physical violence on top of that. Um, yeah, like it's, it is, it is a thing that could happen there. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it is like, yeah, when I have my mother calling me dozens of messages from random people, like worried about this, then yeah, it's, it is an issue. Like I've, um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, not a thing. (laughs) No, it, it is. And the, the rhetoric is so universal against, uh, anyone they perceive to be leftist to that it is really dangerous. Like there's been a little bit of talk of like counters in, in Ottawa. Um, when the numbers are this big, like there's no safe way uh, for people to, to stop that sort of thing, especially when all, all the vehicles are on that side. Like it's uh it's dangerous. There's a lot of violent stuff. Um, even uh, like I was uh, looking today, uh, 
the People's Party of Canada, so they got like 5% of votes in our last election. They had a, a little bit of a scandal uh, during our election, uh, which is the, the end of last year, um, where uh, a writing director for, uh, I think it's, uh, it's uh, the Greater Area of London. It is Elgin Middlesex, London. Uh, so they're, they're writing directors, so not their member of parliament writing. Um, was revealed to uh, post like skull mask Nazi memes and memes comparing Bernier, the leader of his own party, to Hitler. So like probably not a negative comparison. Oh boy. Um, and he was not fired for it, uh, but he was fired after it came out that he was being charged for throwing rocks at our prime minister. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that's, that's fine. <sighs> yeah, I, he actually he, re- he recently said on a live stream, uh, he was asked if he was currently on trial. And he said, yeah, I mean, as far as I know. Uh, like he's been posting images of like trucks running people over and that's just like one connection to uh to the legitimacy of it all um like you, i mean the uh, the plat army guys the ones who talked about uh driving the truck 16 feet they're also connected with uh, bernier they've had um randy hillier on their podcast before who's a sitting politician and a member of provincial parliament which is kind of like our state senate equivalent over here um uh, they, they've had him on and like there, there's some like legitimacy to it um, getting on. And when you d- just talk about the broad movement in general, uh, former um, Conservative Party of Canada leader, Andrew Scheer, uh, who had kind of a rocky departure from the party uh, because he uh, allegedly used campaign funds to uh, pay for his kids private school. Side note, uh, like he'd already signed on and endorsed and, and been interviewed. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, the current leader of the uh, of the conservative party uh just today actually uh said he was going to engage with them earlier this evening sergeant at arms packridge mcdonald sent an email to our parliamentarians ahead of saturday's trucker convoy protest i'm quoting justin link's twitter here there have been attempts to collect mp's home addresses as such the sergeant at arms is advising to avoid the rally and go somewhere safe that uh, apparently wasn't listened <laughs> to aaron o'toole who said to do it anyways and uh to justin link tweeted later tomorrow i will be meeting with truckers o'toole announces right after parliamentary security uh warned mps to avoid the protests entirely so it's not great yeah i mean again this will probably come out after saturday so if we don't talk about this again then that means if it's probably good. <laughs> it, it's good i mean it, they, they they showed up they protested and they kind of dissipated if we're following this up in a few days with another episode then that means something bad happened <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but again, even even at this point, it is still worth talking about in terms of uh, like the ex- generally like this is like yeah, because so- this is like, the kind of like the the nut of why this is so important for everybody is, is what you were saying about like when you've got this many people, this many trucks coming from an outside and moving into a city, there's very little that can be done against them. Um, like there's not there's not really much of an effective counter other than trying to get another mass of people in cars to confront them. And that's, um, you know, a potentially dicey situation. So this remains a very powerful tactic. We've seen it used all over the United States too. Like, and it's this idea of like blockading a city, even though this is kind of the earliest step in taking that is, is this is going to be the last time people try to extend this logic. Yeah, so that that's kind of the surrounding cultural reasons and shifts in rhetoric and like applicableness as like an act of like an act of like protest or like uh, like revolt or insurgency, whatever whatever term you want to use, is 
disintegrate because like a lot of these the other interesting thing about the states like, compared to canada is like in the states we have like we have like an actual like far right movement like we have like we have like conservatives when then we have like the far right movement in canada the, the, that distinction is not much of a thing a lot of a lot of there is there is some far right figures who try to push stuff forward absolutely but a lot of like the 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 space in between conservative and far right is kind of a little bit more fluid uh, yeah. cuz like a, a lot of these people who are showing up are not like far right protesters they are kind of regular conservatives but they're still getting sucked into saying i advocate a civil war like that is just like a regular conservative dude he's not a member of any kind of political thing he's it's like it's that is just that is just kind of what this culture on the western side of canada really really like a kind of defaults to almost when you start going into this kind of like anti-trudeau territory because that's the, the their 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 main their main politics is anti-trudeau like that is that is what they are so anything that gets to that point is allowed whether that is conservative or that is like more far right as long as it's anti-trudeau then it's it is a valid politic and that's another yeah, distinction yeah. in the state that it that is a thing into canada that i don't really see as much in the states it's very familiar to me when you talk about how anti-Clintonism fed into Trumpism. Like that—that that is, I think, a worthwhile comparison to make sure, because sure. there were a lot of American conservatives who could get in bed with anybody if they were standing against Hillary or Bill. Um, cool stuff. Well, this is all fun. <laughs> I hope to not talk with you about this again, Dan. Yeah. Um, but there is a chance. <laughs> There is a chance we will have conversations. Um, if if you wouldn't want to after after this episode airs, if people want to see what happened, right? Because this this airs probably Monday, um, and the convoy is set to arrive on Saturday. W where can they find work uh, talking about this? Whether that be like your your Twitter feed or um, if you know if any you know articles are planned. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm planning on live tweeting. Um, I can't make any promises uh, because safety is always a thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I won't know what it looks like until Saturday happens, but I'm planning on live tweeting. Um, my Twitter is uh, at SpinelessL. Uh, that's the word spineless and then just the letter L. So yeah, you can check in on his account to see if he has a thread by the time this episode's out. Um and yeah, that's that's how you can kind of figure out what happened if you're just listening to this now. Yeah. And then in the meantime, yeah, there'll can... be a lot of Ottawa media covering it. Uh, mm -hmm. If you just want to see the fallout, um, I imagine the Canadian Anti Hate Network might talk about it more. They put out an article today on it uh, that that covers more of the the kind of problems that the far right that we talked about today than the most other media will go into. They did. Awesome. Uh, that was a very good article. And then also today, um, I uh, Elon Musk tweeted in support of the Canadian <laughs> truckers. So just in oh terms boy. of let's just as as a good example, I think this situation is a really great way to start thinking about politics and culture um, and how they relate to each other and how this type of thing succeeds and how it succeeds um, and why this rhetoric is so successful in bringing in so many people in Canada and raising six million dollars, <laughs> almost seven million dollars. But anyway, that is that is the show. Uh, one more plug, Dan, so people know where to find you. Uh, I only really am active on Twitter. So again, it's at spineless L, uh, the word spineless, as in I don't have a spine, uh, and then the letter L on Twitter. Well, thank sure you, you Dan. Plug your Gitter account. Your Gitter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, real, real Gitter user vibes coming off of Dan. 
The only social media platform that Joe Rogan looked at and said, eh. Robert's (laughs) just trying to get me to plug my sock puppet accounts. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Everyone, follow his socks. This is a fucking (laughs) up. You can follow all my sock puppets at (laughs) fascistwizard.ca. Anyway, that that, that does it for our show. Uh, Thank you for listening. And yeah, Convoys... Canada can't can't escape. Bad. Excellent. Thank you for having me. me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. It's the New Year's again! Woo! Yeah, uh, welcome welcome to the Year of the Tiger. Uh, this is a special... Special Lunar New Year's edition of It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is today just about, well, it's still about sort of things falling apart and things being rebuilt, but I wanted to specifically, you know, do 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 a, do a special Lunar New Year's episode and spend some time, I think, talking about Chineseness and how, what sort of being a part of the Chinese diaspora in sort of in the US and Canada is like, and 
you know, and how how that how they influences how we organize, how we, what what we're afraid of, what we're sort of proud of. Um, and with me to talk about this, we have JN, who I think first time ever returning guest. Yeah, who is it? Uh, works with Lausan. Hello, JN. Oh, what an honor! Thanks, thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, thank you for coming. And we also have Jane Shi, who is a queer Chinese settler living in unceded traditional and ancestral territories in the Musqueam, Sasquamish, and Tsleil-Waututh uh, nations in what is f- falsely and fakely considered Canada. Um, she is a poet, writer, editor, and an organizer, and does many other cool things. Hello, Jane. Welcome, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, just wanted to share that it's Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I <laughs> Unfortunately, I do not live up north, and so my, my pronunciations of, of tribal names are even worse than uh, they are for the tribal names that are around me. So my apologies. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> so... All right. Before we get into a bunch of extremely grim stuff, I wanted to because this is the this if you you will be listening to well okay unless you're listening to this on Monday night in which case uh congratulations on beating time but most of you're probably gonna be listening to listening to this on uh on Lunar New Year's and so I wanted to before yeah before everything gets completely dark I wanted to know what Yuchi's favorite Chinese New Year's food is because this is like. Maybe my favorite holiday, and what it's basically my favorite holiday because in 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 grand Chinese tradition, it's just an excuse to eat a lot. So yeah, opening the floor up. Yeah, I think you're the expert here, Jane. So feel free to. <laughs> I am not lay, an expert. Lay down the knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I am not an expert just because uh, <laughs> I fold dumplings does not mean uh, I'm an expert. But I, I mean, I haven't spends like lunar new year's with really that many other people in a very long time mm. so my sense of like breadth of food has really really narrowed to what is available to me um and i also have been really struggling with the dumplings that i've been making because of like carpal tunnel issues but i've been th- thinking a lot about jellyfish lately Mm. like I keep thinking about jellyfish I keep thinking about like the sesame anything with sesame in it yeah and like just boiled dumplings I feel like are really great for me at this particular moment yeah yeah my favorite is uh in Cantonese it's called ningo which is it's a oh, you stole mine. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it's amazing, no, right? It's, it is, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, and the way my mom used to make it all the time was like dipping it in in egg first. Oh, cool. Um, and so it, it has this kind of like eggy crust on it, which was really, mm-hmm. really awesome. And I've been making that for the past couple of years myself, uh, where I am, and I can't wait to. Uh, go to the grocery store and grab some because nice. it's only available around this time. Yep. <laughs> uh, I guess they don't really produce it any other time. And uh, last time I went to visit my mom, she like loaded my suitcase full of them and I wasn't <laughs> able to eat them fast enough, unfortunately. And some of them went bad. But, yeah. Oh no, <laughs> we have a, we, we have one in our refrigerator. Well, I think it's, I think it's, it was in the freezer. And it's now I think in the refrigerator and we're, we're all incredibly excited to cut into it on new year's. 
Yeah. Do you, do you guys do the? Because uh, I know. So we we normally have red bean ones. I know there's like brown sugar ones or something that are like plain. Wait, I just wanted to check. Like, is it Nangal? Yeah, or at least yeah. So like, so like the the sort of like flower thing that is like shaped like a semicircle. Yeah. Wait. Oh, so yeah. I feel like there's different. Or in like, like an entire circle. Yeah. Yeah. We oh. usually cut them into like sh- like square strips, but I think that's just like a cooking ease of cooking thing. Yeah, and it usually comes with like a date or something on top. Yeah. Yeah. When it's packaged. That is so interesting because I feel like the Nangal that I grew up with doesn't usually have a lot of thing on it. It's kind of like sticky and kind of plain. And I'm just this is this is a new thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the one we usually get just has red beans in it, and then there's like the one date on the top. Oh, I don't know if you're thinking of like Tao Ningo, which is like a different type of dish. Um, where it's like white rice cakes and then you you can like it's like saucy and oh, then you yeah, put like different a, ingredients in it. Yeah, I think it's a different ours are just that they're like they're they're pretty close like to a sweet the dessert, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm just talking about the just regular Ningal. Like they're just like like they're 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 basically plain, but there's some red bean like stirred into the dough and then it's just like the flat brown thing that you like fry. Yeah, so that's bit, what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. All right. This is this we've now done dessert chat. Uh which is a <laughs> <laughs> honest honestly much much less grim time than most of the stuff that happens on here. And you have all been now subjected to it. Uh go eat Chinese New Year's food. It's great. Uh yeah. So on to things that are somewhat more grim. Um I think there's there's two big things I wanted to talk about that sort of related to like I guess Chinese diaspora ness. Um I guess we can start with talking a bit about anti Asian violence and police violence because I mean it's not like so my sort of into this is that my my Someone, uh, okay, so one of the things that's happened in the past about two years was this the huge sort of spike in anti-Asian violence. But then, you know, part of what happens politically around that was there was this huge attempt to essentially turn anti-Asian violence into, I guess, like the anti-BLM, like especially in the U.S. But I think I think this happened elsewhere too, where it, it, there was there was it didn't I don't know it it it, it worked in some places and didn't work in other places. So I, I went to the University of Chicago and a few, is it a few months ago now? Maybe it was a couple, like a month or two ago, a uh, Asian a Chinese international student like got shot on campus. And this turned into a huge sort of like bring more cops on campus. They, there was a huge petition that got signed. That was the people were like asking for more security cameras and asking for more cops. And like the UCPD, like, like a couple of weeks later, just like shot a dude. And so that there, there's been, I've, I've been seeing this tension a lot. And I was wondering if you two had also sort of run into similar stuff and what your thoughts were on it. Um, I mean, I feel like unfortunately with Canada, there's like this dynamic where we look to the States 
for news and validation in this weird way that I find really delegitimizes the unique struggles that are here that are different. Um, There are, there's a different kind of police system. There's like the um, local police, like Vancouver Police Department. um, But then there's also the RCMP, the Royal Mountain Canadian Police, which are in other municipalities and the RCMP was created specifically um, as a tool of settler colonialism to enforce the Indian Act, which is, um, I guess, the most succinctly way I can put it is segregation um, of Indigenous peoples from settlers. And there is a lot of displacement of Black communities across Canada, but and there was also slavery in Canada, even though we like to pretend that there wasn't. And so against this background, I guess, um, and ongoing, like, police brutality, whether it's in Wet'suwet'en territories or just the police killing people, there's a lot of mainstream Asian Canadian and Chinese Canadian institutions that are very, very much complicit in the system. Like there is an organization, an immigrant Chinese Canadian organization in Vancouver, who one of the board members is a cop who is married to a, 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 uh, city councilor. And a lot of the discourse that institutions, not people themselves necessarily, but institutions create around, for example, the revitalization of Chinatown or the preservation of culture is around, oh, there's graffiti in the neighborhood. Chinatown and Vancouver is in the downtown east side, which is considered um, the poorest post, is considered the poorest post of cold in Canada. And it's like a tight knit community with a lot of indigenous peoples, black people, people in poverty struggling against the poisoning massacre, um, wherein the government is not providing, um, safe supply and where the police just kind of like are everywhere pointing guns at everyone, displacing the tent cities. And so when there is an easy, not an easy, but just like a a demonized group of people that um, the general public doesn't know enough about. Um, If you walk through the downtown side and talk to people, you would talk to people about their experiences with residential school, their experiences with missing family members, experiences with poverty. And in in the broadest terms, it's like, the way that Chinatown's being gentrified, people tend to blame the poor. Um, and there's like this divide and conquer mentality within the Asian diaspora, within the Chinese diaspora specifically. And so similar to what happened with um, Michelle Go, similar to her, um, there was a South Asian elderly woman who 
a group of people who lived in the tent city had killed pretending to be cops when they knocked on her door and the count one of the city councilors um in vancouver was like this we need to stop indulging in these tent cities um meanwhile there's a lot of like marginalized people in these tent cities who 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 can't um who need to live there because it's COVID times and um, society has abandoned them. So it's like anti-Asian racism and violence has also the hate, the so-called hate crime thing has so apparently increased. um, And I don't think that it's, hasn't increased. It's just that like the way that the media, the way that the institutions within Canada is also jumping onto the police wagon, (laughs) the police, the hate crime angle, rather than learn from abolitionists, rather. Yeah, this is a long way of putting it. It's like (laughs) similar, it's similar. And I know a lot of details. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that tracks. I mean, the the targets are slightly different just based on sort of snares, but on the sort of local context. But I think that does, yeah, that tracks a lot with what we've been seeing here as I think there, there's a, there's another thing that I don't know. So I, I really don't like the term like, like because what the, the, is it the Twitter hashtag stop Asian hate? Like I, I hate that framing of it as sort of hatred, not racism, but even the sort of the anti-Asian violence framing, which I've been used a lot, I think has problems because, you know, I mean, this is one of the things you were talking about. One of the things that I've seen a lot is just, you know, anytime, like, you know, the, 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 there are genuine sort of racism attacks, right? But then there's also just, like, I mean, one of the sort of scare things that happened here was it was, like, a bunch of people's, like, a bunch of rest- like Chinese restaurants got broken into and robbed. And everyone was like, well, this is anti-Asian violence. And it's like, well, no, like, this is just theft. And and there, there's there's been this sort of, like, collapsing of something bad happens to an Asian person, with specifically sort of like targeted racist attacks. And I think that's been, well, I mean, that's been a problem. And then there's also the secondary problem of, you know, who, who even gets included in this in the first place. Like one, one of the biggest things I've been frustrated about is, you know, the sort of the selective inclusion of South Asian people. Like I, there, there was, there was a, a shooting at a FedEx uh, facility last year by a guy who was like, very much very far right kind of like pilled online guy and it killed a bunch of Sikh workers and there was never there was just nothing like no one talked about his anti-asian violence but then you know selectively you get inclusions of southeast asian people when it's like it's it's like people get folded into being asian when it's like useful to call for more police but then when it's, you know, not useful for that or when it's, you know, especially when it's working class people getting killed, there's just sort of nothing. And I've been, I don't know, I've been really frustrated by this dynamic a lot. Um, yeah, and Jane, I want to know what you think about this, too, because I have now talked long enough about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, wasn't there, there was a hate crime bill that was passed in Congress, right? Uh, and it was supposedly, quote unquote, supposed to be addressing all this, quote unquote, anti-Asian hate stuff. And 
you know, the only thing it accomplished was it created like some some government organ to like oversee these efforts to address hate crimes and then more funding for the police, right? So I think it was a, it was a very kind of direct impact. We could just see uh, how this discourse transformed into exactly what a lot of you know organizers had said would happen, which is more funding for the police and not making communities safer, right? So um, I, I think the real conundrum for me and the thing that really kind of, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and I get, I get kind of frustrated is, um, you know, whenever these, these attacks happen on, you know, Asian heritage or Asian identified people, um, the response, I mean, it's, it's a good natured and it's well-meaning and I agree with it, but it, it, you know, the response is always like the, the, telling folks who have been victimized or those who know them um, that more police is not the answer, right? And, you know, I think that's true, but then I, I, I think what I'm struggling with is how to make this message resonate with those folks, right? Because I think there's a way that in some ways that can alienate them even more and make them even more reaction, right? Because that's, you know, the media has often spun that argument uh they use further instances of violence to spin that argument of like when when people say the answer is not more cops it doesn't make us safer uh the media is able to spin that to say look this isn't working right it's things are actually getting more dangerous uh all the kind of like scaremongering tactics with uh crime statistics and all that stuff which are usually false anyway so i think that's what i'm trying to figure out now is like you know because in in Chinatown, LA, where you know, where I've done some work, there was community uh, meetings with CCD, uh, the Chinatown uh, Committee for Equitable. Uh, oh, what's what's the D stand for? I always forget. Uh, development. Um, they had some meetings with community folks to kind of like you know hear what hear what they wanted to uh, do to address this, and they they kind of like a lot of those organizers had, um, you know, they're coming from that viewpoint that calling for more cops is not the answer. And so some uh, of the male, they're from the community, but they're not, they weren't part of the kind of like senior population of Chinatown, which is, you know, it's like low-income seniors is, is kind of like are the folks that are being pushed out and by developers and all the gentrification happening as well. Um some of some men were, were kind of like, okay, well, we should start uh, kind of like armed neighborhood watch. Um, and, you know, I think in, in some way that taps into this kind of like, we protect us type of uh, ethos, right? It's, it's not relying on uh, a state or government uh, or whatever police paramilitary force. Um, but then I think the question that some folks had, I heard the second hand was that, um, you know, are, are these people actually from the community and, and are they actually doing this to address the needs of the folks, um, who are most affected by it? Right. And so I think some folks were uncomfortable with the idea that there should be these kind of like street patrols. Um, mm. and so there's, there's just so many different ways to approach this. And I haven't, you know, I, I'm not laying blame on anyone, but I just haven't seen an effective way to, uh, counteract that call for more police yet. That's a really good point because I feel like in when especially um, Asian women 
people who experience like various forms of sexual violence or um, street harassment, um, that sense of unsafety is amplified when we witness other people getting murdered in public spaces. And so I think in a way it's like understandable why people want to grasp for any kind of solution and and also why that kind of trauma can be weaponized or like taken advantage of immediately like just because I'm like who asked for you to be street patrols of Chinatown who decided that you make the community safer have you consulted the seniors have you <laughs> have you talked with all of the seniors uh, all of the elders to ask them like how would you feel if I did that like where is that suggestion coming from and I think that like the other argument is that like mental health resources is an alternative to policing, even though um, policing and mental health systems are very, very, very connected. Um, Edward Wong has an article about that in Upping the Ante. And I don't know. I just think that like, there has to be like a way to talk about this without invalidating each other's trauma and invalidating um people's survival instincts as well because I feel like um for years uh, as someone who's done work in the anti-violence sector it's not that I I wanted there to be more policing it's just that like a lot of survivors might be like hey I actually do want to use the court system because this person is dangerous like that's uh, like as somebody supporting a survivor, I can't just go, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Less cops. Right. Like that's that's not um, a compassionate response. And it's also not a compassionate response to go, hey, you're making this like all about yourself and you should like be talking about like black and indigenous people like 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 that's that's also really insensitive. So it's like I feel like there is a way that. There, there is like a way to talk about abolition that really needs to respect every survivor or every like community's like trauma. And it's not an easy thing because it's not like our communities have had a good way to respond to trauma. <laughs> like we haven't really like we're still breaking the cycles of intergenerational trauma. Yeah, and I, and I think this this kind of comes back to another sort of difficulty of this whole project because, you know, a lot of the sort of the abolitionist framework is about like tra- trans- transitioning things towards community solutions. But like, what is that? You know, like what what does that even mean when you're dealing with, you know, this, this is this is part of the problem with well, okay, you have armed self defense groups, but you know what happens when inevitably and this is this is just something that happens just you know this is this is this is the nature of security forces right is eventually you're going to get abusers in it and it's like okay well what happens then and what happens when you know like the abusers are people inside the community and and this is compounded i think by this problem of 
like what like what even you know the the I, I think I think there's 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 a broader problem of like what Asianness is, and there's a broader and this is this is also sort of localized problem of like what even like is the Chinese community at all because you're dealing with something that's incredibly fragmented. You're dealing with people who speak different languages. You're dealing with people who've been in these places for you know some people have been here for centuries. Some people who've been here like two months, and I think that makes it really difficult in a lot of ways to sort of like even even just bring together something that could be a community and i know i know what happens and i know you know there's 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 lots of different sort of like fragmented communities but but i think it makes this harder because there isn't a sort of like ready-made thing you can turn to and go okay well this is how we're going like this is the group of people and this is the sort of like social sphere and this is the community that we're going to turn to to sort of deal with this stuff there's just this kind of a bunch of amorphous different groups and then also you have the problem that like you know if you're going to talk about like political forces in Asian communities like the, the business associations are extremely powerful and you know we have different objectives than they do but they're also like extremely well organized in a way that most other sort of like Chinese groups aren't. I don't know that that's 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 been where my thinking has been going on this. Yeah, I think um, this there's some resonance with what you're saying and the kind of dynamics that you're identifying and what I've kind of witnessed and experienced in like Hong Kong diaspora organizing, um, which I think you know there's a lot of overlap with that same. Uh, type of like you know small business organization type of thing that usually dominates uh, Chinatowns across North America, which is the case in LA. And actually, CCD spends a lot of time fighting the the small business organizations um, because they are very friendly with developers, um, and they're usually pro um, you know pro securitization and pro, uh, anti poor folks and all that kind of stuff. So. There is that that element, right, where a lot of the times, you know, you are fighting against people who, who might have the like, same heritage, for example. Um, and, you know, for me personally, that's, that's very much the case with Hong Kong diaspora groups, right? Because, you know, many of them are very conservative, uh, are right wing, and not only just kind of held personal beliefs, but advocate a lot for these kind of, you know, the, these policies and politicians and and all these different things that I, I really can't stand and I'm aligned against. Um, and, you know, I think it's a lot of folks want to take the kind of pragmatist route of like, we'll work with you on things that we, where we have points of unity. Uh, otherwise we don't. Whereas, you know, I, I guess some people see me as, as a little bit more rigid in the sense that like, I don't want to work with these folks at all because, um, I see them as kind of themselves as, as a force that is causing more harm than good. Um, especially if with these Hong Kong diaspora groups, the, the usual mantra is like Hong Kong first, like everything that we do is, is serving Hong Kong. Um, and that you in the diaspora, that usually means kind of like nonpartisanship lobbying Congress, all those different things. Um, and then kind of like completely ignoring or being agnostic of uh, local and domestic issues um, to oversimplify a little bit. So, 
you know, I think that's been on my mind a lot. I know your question was about Chinese-ness, but I guess for me, that, that kind of filters a little bit further down to like, what is being a Hong Konger, right? Yeah. It's really difficult to organize with your specific quote-unquote ethnic or diaspora community when the the meaning of diaspora is not a cohesive community but people's memories of home um it's like a difficult thing to kind of butt butt your head against because it's like you have your um diversity equity inclusion framework of organizing and then you have the everyday like what 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 these frameworks can't simplify which is the tensions between your communities like I didn't grow up experiencing overt racist violence when I grew up in Richmond um Richmond is an extremely East Asian and Chinese suburb um that saw first um not first but just like at some point a a wave of hong kong diaspora because of 1997 and then afterwards more like mainlanders um and so on the playground somebody was like are you from taiwan mainland or or hong kong and that was when i was like seven and that was my introduction to what it means to be in diaspora in this particular kind of way and um being like just right like in that and in that and and figuring yourself out within that and seeing how there is just an absence of community because of how like these different geopolitical experiences have like separated us um and made it more difficult um like when we filter our parents political beliefs onto each other (laughs) it's kind of like this awkward thing yeah but but i think that like um in in trying to contend with that in the in the present it's sort of like um we have these older institutions that other people that that the older generations have built what new things can we build what things can we um cuz i i feel like i'm i'm really rigid too i'm like really not great at yeah talking <laughs> across the aisle and when i do it's not it's not really about anything substantive it's like hey like hi it's good to see you, you know like when you live in a place you you don't want to make like make enemies but like it's it's a really hard thing um and it's even more heartbreaking when you find out slowly that people are just taking advantage of you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, and I, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to organize against when you're like, you all hate me. (laughs) Great. Love it. (laughs) This has been Naked Happen here. Join us for part two of this discussion tomorrow. We go into more detail on the state of the left. In the meantime, you can find us at happened here pod on Twitter, Instagram, and check out the cool zone for other shows that we do. Me. Focus.
Greatest Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that recognizes that Lunar New Year's is not, in fact, just one day. And in that spirit, a special New Year's episode is going on for a second day. So here's the rest of our conversation with Jan and Jan. You know, the, the other thing I wanted to sort of touch on, like, this is, I think, kind of diverting off the topic, but I think is also something that I've been running into a lot, which is that, like, you know, you have this kind of, like, you know, you have this kind of bind, right? Because on the one hand, you're stuck between, you know, like, a lot a lot of the organizing in sort of in Asian communities has all of these problems. And then, you know, okay, well, you know, the, the other thing that's happening is is the sort of mainstream American left. And the mainstream American left, and I think the Canadian left has problem, similar problems with this, is that, like, it's a bunch of just, like, it's a bunch of tankies, it's a bunch of people who love the CCP, it's a bunch of just weird genocide deniers, and, like, people who think that every Asian person who, like, doesn't like the government is a CIA psyop, and, I don't know, this is something that I've, like, I mean, I've, I ran into a lot trying to... I mean, help people doing Hong Kong organizing is something I've run into just in like every organize. Like I've, I've run, I've run into this in anarchist spaces too. Like it's, it's just, 
I don't know. It it, it 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 feels really bad because it's like like you're you're just sort of caught between, and I, I guess this is sort of there's this three way triangulation, right? Because on the one hand, you have this sort of like you you have the 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 local dynamics with you know the sort of descendants of these the sort of reactionary small business owners. You have this you know the, the the Chinese community also being sort of split in between like pro and anti CCP factions, both of whom have like are absolutely chock full of just fanatical right wingers. It's like, well, okay, it's like the CCP versus the Epoch Times, and it's like I don't want any of them to win. And then you zoom out and you're caught in the middle of this sort of you're caught in the middle of this sort of I I don't know. I, I think it's sort of like a Fox geopolitical struggle, but like one of one of the big sort of ideological conflicts being between both the CCP and the US sort of like using the specter of each other to sort of like disturb their bases and i don't know i'm incredibly frustrated by it i'm incredibly frustrated by the way that these groups have like the anti-ccp like the 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 the, the pro-ccp groups have sort of selectively been using anti like selectively been using anti-asian violence as you know the to basically making the argument that the importance of anti-Asian violence is that, uh, well, this only happens because people say mean things about the CCP, and if no one didn't like the CCP, then uh, there wouldn't be any violence, even though like anti-Asian violence here predates the existence of a communist party in China by centuries. Like we, we like the we we invaded we'd invaded China like how many times? At least twice, maybe three. <sighs> I think at least twice and maybe three times, like before there was a communist party. And so I don't know. I, I, I feel trapped a lot between these dynamics in ways that are very frustrating. And yeah, I guess I want to open the floor up to talk about that. I guess I see it as like co-optation partly. Um, but I, I guess I also see it as, how power works like i there's like this uh local paper and i was researching sort of the history of chinese diaspora organizing locally and there was a spat in the paper between two people who one of whom is from um a newer Hong Kong diaspora. There was like a whole spat um, in the paper about his history. And there's the history of like those tensions are like written in the community itself. Like it's, it's, it's not a new thing that people argue about what happened on June 4th. It's not new that people are really mistrustful of each other and that there are actual like government forces that infiltrate and create a like basically deny other people's struggles like um when that the, the, that government is themselves perpetuating it. And I guess it just is really hard when fellow organizers that you otherwise really like want to get along with are are like uncritical of the state that has oppressed your family <laughs> because <Yep. laughs> you're just kind of like you're kind of like wait so 
are we, have we had a conversation about this? Like we clearly haven't talked enough if this is what you believe in. And it's just a little bit hard because it's like community building is not assuming that we're in solidarity. Community building is actually like doing that hard work. Like what is your community experiencing and what is my community experiencing? How are we being like weaponized against each other? Like, yeah, how are these governments like manipulating like communities? But that's like really hard when trust has been probably broken like yeah. immediately. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're so right that it's it's really about co-optation. And a, a lot of it, like what I've witnessed is really so much about, um, and this is like like you're saying, Jane, this is a much older dynamic than, you know, just the past couple of years is like uh, states being able to use this kind of home and diaspora framework to um, demand loyalty through like targeting diaspora people's guilt. Yeah. Um, and so there's so many like guilty diaspora people I know who are like, you know, usually from usually from a class perspective, right? Because they had the reason their family had the resources to leave or uh, they were not born in the home country or whatever uh, because of their family background, that type of thing. And they want to subsume that by taking this radical, you know, anti-US, anti-Canada stance um, which is fine. Like, obviously, being anti-US and anti-Canada is a good thing. But um, the thing that's really kind of frustrated me the most is seeing these kind of like radical folks uh, in North America, um, especially queer folks who are like, they'll take the most reactionary positions against women and queer and, you know, LGBT folks in China, for example, uh, by supporting a state that is uh, repressing them, right? So it's, it's such cognitive dissonance to me. Like, I don't understand why these folks can't see um, that they're kind of perpetuating this violence in, in the service of this kind of overarching imperative of not ever saying anything bad about China because it'll help, it'll, it'll bolster the U.S. propaganda war machine, which is like, there's absolutely a way that, I mean, that, that absolutely happens if you do that uh, uncarefully, right? If you just kind of repeat um, U.S. media narratives and stuff like that. But I think there's absolutely a way to do both, right? And um, to me, the way to do that is to not um, support the state discourses that demand loyalty from the diaspora, but to actually, you know, it's the grassroots thing, right? It's just kind of like uh, we support queer folks around the world who are struggling under repression from their governments and that type of thing. Um, and being able to very carefully say that with nuance um, and to, to be against both at the same time, for example. Um, but that's really, really difficult, right? Um, and people have very kind of vitriolic reactions when you try and do that, um, as you know, she said up top, uh, Chris. So I don't know, this, this is still the conundrum for me because I, I tend to take the more rigid stance against, against these folks, but I know people who are very kind of they take a more compassionate stance, which is like these, these are newly politicized youth. Um, they're just coming to a lot of these politics and positions. Um, and, you know, being anti-US is better than not being anti-US is, is what a lot of folks say. And, you know, I, I agree to a certain extent, but then it's also like, if they're being miseducated in these histories, um, that's okay to a certain point when you're exploring and discovering these things and becoming radicalized. But, you know, 
like Jane said, there's also these kind of material direct impacts that you have on people that you uh, work with, that you organize with, that that are your friends or loved ones. Um, that you know that kind of explanation of like, oh, they're just learning is like it's insufficient in that kind of individual way because you're still hurting people and threatening people around you, right? So I think there has to be a balance in like being able to steer folks in into these like non-Stalinist, non-statist uh, directions, even while they're discovering. I hate how we're even having to be like steering people into a non-Stalinist yeah. <laughs> perspective. I'm just like, I, I'm not horny for Stalin. I like the thing that pisses me off about this is just like, like they're not even Stalinists. Like this is the thing that's frustrating. Like if 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 they were merely 20th century Stalinists, we wouldn't be having this argument. Because, you know, 20th century Stalinism is like, well, yeah, okay, like 20th century Stalinists are anti-market economy. And it's like, no, they they've somehow found a way to take literally the worst aspects of Stalinism and then be like, okay, but what if what if what if Stalinism but also capitalism good at the same time? And it's just like how how did you do this? Like, how, how did you come up with an ideology that, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think I think also a, a thing that's been frustrating to me about this is, like, it, it, it's a way of sort of, of, of it, it becomes this way of channeling, you know, you have the diaspora guilt on the one hand, then you have just random sort of, like, white leftists sort of white guilt. And, and it, it becomes this way of, like, channeling that into this sort of fall anti-racism where you know you get you get people who are like actual professional like hacks right like roger day for example being like uh you know to doing things like well if you if you if you if you criticize the chinese state at all it's xenophobia and like you're directly leading to people getting killed and it's like no that's not how this works And, and there's this kind of it's 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 this problem of they have this this fundamental inability to see Chinese people as people and not a sort of undifferentiated mass that can be sort of rallied behind an ideology. And I don't know. That's been... I think weird to deal with because, you know, like, yeah, like, you're always just... In, in in Chinese communities, like you're always you're just you're just gonna have like, you know, th- there's gonna be a few people who are just sort of like pro CCP right wingers, right? That's just, that's just their sort of default political position. But there's there's this way in which you you get this, you know, people adopting. I mean, just. Things that, like, if you said this about any, like, white American, for example, if you, if you argued that any, like, a white American making $1,000 a year wasn't in poverty, right? Like, you just couldn't do it. You, like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's literally impossible. You, like, you'd, you'd be laughed out of the room or, you know, like, you're, you, you would, you would, you'd be, like, ratioed until the cows come home. But you can just, but everyone, I mean, people just say this constantly. Like, this is just, it's just a thing that was like, well, if you look at poverty reduction, it's like, well, Chinese, China has eliminated uh, absolute poverty. It's like, yeah, okay, a thousand dollars a year is outside of this now, and I, I think that there's these ways in which it be, it becomes hard to to intervene in this stuff because, uh, like every every Asian person, specifically every Chinese person, just becomes a sort of token that like 
you know, you just sort of like throw at each other as this like, oh, well, yeah, I, here's a Chinese person who says the CCP is good. It's like, well, here's another Chinese person who says that it's bad. And it's like, it, you never, it's like on both sides, whether, whether the pro-CCP people realize it or not, it's their agencies being sort of stripped by them. And they've, they've been turned into the sort of instrumentalized, like, you know, in, in, the, in the same thing that they're also doing to us, is they're, they're turning to sort of these instruments that you can use to, like, back your own sort of political agenda. And this... I don't know. I like th- This has gotten me to just... I, I just don't work with these people anymore. Like, we tried it. It was a disaster. They screwed us over. And so, I don't know. But 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 I think that's, that's, that's a lonely stance in a lot of ways. Like, you know, if if you take this kind of like hardline position, you're not gonna. Most people, even other people who don't support it, probably won't follow you there. I don't know. It's weird because I find a lot of organizing is really lonely. It's like it's <laughs> it's not like like I want to post a rant being like. Why aren't you all donating to this? But that's not, that's also guilt, right? That's like projecting guilt onto other people. Um, and that's not an effective tool. And I think that like, like, you're so right in addressing both the white guilt, but also the diaspora guilt. And also just how frustrating it is to organize against the state when it's like two people like three people doing it in a little group project for lack of a better word but it's sort of like how do we make this sustainable when it's so lonely and how do we use the resources that are available to us to not replicate these systems yet again and I guess when it comes to the left (laughs) or progressives in Canada it's like so frustrating because it's like there isn't actually a lot of community outreach to like racialized communities there's no translation there's a lot of like nonprofit work that is frankly very draining and co-optive themselves um like it's it's a a bunch of social service organizations and a trench coat and a bunch of political organizations that don't work together or talk to each other in a trench coat and um so I understand why youth would join like leftist like radical organizing but it it's just really heartbreaking when it's you're they end up reading uh, in reading groups where they're reading historical or, or so-called historical texts that erase your histories like it it's just such a like like uh, reading is great like political education is incredible <laughs> um but i'm like it's hard not to grow resentful <laughs> when the guy at the top is a university educated white dude and they're reading texts that literally erase your entire family and it's um that like yeah for me it's like just really personal that way it's like there are people who are suffering in the present and you're reading a text by a white sociologist from the 80s 
things <laughs> like like yeah. not to, like i'm uh, like it's not that like i don't think that we should do that political education it's just that like at a reading group will you listen to me when i call you out <laughs> yeah i i definitely you know both of you saying that this work is really lonely especially if you take if you stand up for yourself or you you really kind of stand by your principles it's i think that's so true and um you know not to speak for everyone in Lausanne but just my experience has been like you know everyone just everyone hates us <laughs> yeah like it's you know we, we get hate from the right we get hate from the left um and from Hong Kong diaspora from Hong Kong locals like it's it's just sometimes it's really hard to see you know, it, because we're we're trying to stay true to our principles, but it's hard to see sometimes uh, whether there's an impact or whether we're just kind of like in a little echo chamber with 20 other people, you know what I mean? And um, it's hard to find that balance because I don't want to become more and more pragmatist where I'm just like, all right, well, you know, I'll work with these people, but I don't agree with them on these fundamental issues just on this one campaign or whatever happens to be. I don't know. I, I know that's a part of like building power, quote unquote, like that a lot of uh, certain socialist groups like to do, or they, they really focus on that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know if it's too much of an academic view to, to be like, if you're going to do it that way, you're, you're, you're changing the outcome already, right? Because you're not addressing these kind of fundamental issues from the start. Um, and I think that view can sometimes lead to like a lot of non-starters where you're just like, things don't ever get off the ground because you insist on whatever fundamental principle that you, that you want to stick to, uh, like anti-nationalism, for example. So yeah, just, just kind of reiterating and and commiserating with you all on the, the loneliness of that. People think that like, not working in these sort of united front things is is this like sort of pure ideological position but like you know i mean so when when occupy ice was happening right occupy ice wound up being a kind of big front thing and one of the groups involved with it was the was the party for socialism liberation who are this sort of like very much sort of like the the base the tanky cult like They've, they've done a lot of other horrible stuff that we'll talk about at some point. But I mean, one of the things that happens in Occupy ICE is that they, you know, in, in Philadelphia, they they destroy the encampment. Uh, like they, they, they convince enough people to just leave and do this completely pointless like march. They can do a photo op of like people in front of the mayor's office and they do it and the camp collapses because suddenly there's not enough people. You know, they, they don't even get a majority of the people, but it doesn't matter because they've pulled enough people out that, you know, we, that the, the camp couldn't be held against the cops anymore. And I think that, in some senses, is this kind of microcosm of what they, of what these people actually do, which is that you know the, the, these people will never have any actual institutional power, right? You know, they're they're, they're never going to create their like Stalinist state or whatever. Like, they're never going to get this. They're they're never going to hold any power. What they can do is there are enough of them. They can they can siphon off enough people from actual leftist movements into this sort of just like white room pro capitalist stuff that they can they can cause movements to collapse. And I mean, they've done this. They, they did a lot of this during the uprising in 2020. There is a lot of them, you know, intentionally leading people on pointless marches. There's a lot of cooperating with the police and stuff like that. And, and I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like having seen that like multiple times, right. I, I, I you know, 
I'm, I, you know, for me, like not working with him was a pragma- is an incredibly pragmatic position because we tried it and they they blew it up. But it's this problem, especially, you know, you have people who were radicalized in like 2020 and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like a lot of them never saw this stuff, right? Don't know who these people are. And their first introduction to the left is this like incredibly well-financed uh, like media blitz. And I think that has, you know, I, th- I think that has consequences both for us as sort of like people on the left doing like, like Chinese people on the left doing our own diaspora organizing and it has consequences for the broader left and like you you can see other sort of versions of this right where you know you, you have a sort of right-wing movement infiltrating leftist spaces and destroying them like there there like there there was a thing like deep green resistance basically blew up a uh like an anti-lithium protest in the u.s by just like going there and just hammering transphobia constantly and so i don't know i i think there's there's this sort of dilemma because i Fundamentally, like they, they will say a lot of the same things we do, but we have fundamentally different goals, and that manifests itself at you know on the level of 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 organizing individual campaigns. But it's something that's really hard to get people to see. I think we've lost a lot of movements because of it. Yeah, and not to be you know not to pile on the cynicism or anything, but I think I, I honestly do think. Uh, you know, as all this new Cold War stuff ramps up, which is like completely independent of what a lot of folks, like grassroots folks, are even thinking or advocating. It's all just kind of up to the the, the two, uh, you know, Chinese and U.S. governments as they ramp up their own tensions. I think it's really going to start. Like people are going to start these people who are. Um, you know, tankies or whatever are going to start narrowing our choices further and further, right? Like, you know, soon it's going to be anathema to, to not, you know, take the anti-US position and that's it. You know what I mean? And I think that's really scary. I, to me, I don't, I, last year I thought there was still room for intervention, but things are closing so quickly and, you know, my personal opinion is that a lot of these kind of uh, bigger groups like No Cold War um, and others like Code Pink are, are definitely being, you know, that they have much more funding than a lot of uh, other groups who are forwarding more nuanced positions. And so, like you're saying, it's just like these media blitzes, this, the, these shiny uh, events and all those different things are very appealing to, to newly radicalized folks, right? Because they think that this this is where the power is and this is where we can actually make a difference. Um, and yeah, things to me, things look pretty bleak in, in the near future. Uh, yeah, I mean, it I, just takes one, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I will say, I think I think they, they they made one major strategic mistake, which is that they tried to do the new, the, the push the giant like new Cold War with China thing at the exact moment that the U.S. and Russia were, like, heating up an actual... And, and this left them, like, kind of off balance because they'd been, for the last two years, the whole thing's been the U.S. is going to accelerate tensions with China, U.S. is going to accelerate tensions with China, and then it turns out that they're not doing that. And in fact, like, they're gearing up for just more proxy war stuff with Russia, which is the thing they've been doing for the past decade. So I think, like, I don't know. Like, I think they, the, the, their problem essentially is that they run into reality... And there, there are certain points at which, like, you know, you you can lie a lot, right? 
but when 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 the lie that you're pushing is about what the mainstream media is going to say and the mainstream media just pivots and is just completely about something that's entirely unrelated like i think i think that hurts them i think everything that the other problem they have that that makes me hopeful is that the way their their base is getting split by just the anti-vax grifters because so so many of their media people just you know are are, are just are just full-on grifters and you know and you're you're seeing splits right now in gray zone about like basically between pro and anti-vax factions and i think that also will help us in the long run because you know say 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 what you want about most leftists and even most tankies like anti-vax is like a bit far even for them and because you know and the other things like the 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 it, it's it's hard to do anti-vax without beginning to take positions that just like it, it's been baked into with just sort of anti-chinese racism in, in in so many ways that like you can't really like you know like you you can't simultaneously be pro incredibly ccp and then also be talking about how the u.s is trying to implement social credit right you know these these are these these positions are just contradictory and i think that's something that plays to our advantage and i i think is weakening them to some extent because they've they they tried to have their cake and eat it too and now they're sort of i don't know their 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 conspiracy theory base is is interfering with their like left base in in ways i think are helpful for us uh, it's just so interesting how like the anti-vax position is literally rooted in racism and ableism like um there's an article in the conversation called the inherent racism of the anti-vax movement that has like really good history around white settlers being afraid of African medicine. Um, um, and then there, there's also just the ableism of assuming that your kid will get autism <laughs> if you get vaccinated that was that that's been a huge thing before the pandemic and that was part of how this was effective in the first place and um yeah and obviously the anti-chinese um like uh anti-asian like scapegoating as well but um I guess that also ties into like just how broadly ableist the left is and how like disability justice is not something that a lot of people know about um, or care about. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a huge problem for me as a disabled person. Yeah. I wanted to add really quickly too. I mean, I, I totally agree with you and you know, I think one of the pernicious things that I've noticed, though, is like these kind of big, you know, quote unquote, anti uh, imperialist accounts like on Instagram, for example, um, they they take this anti-vax position precisely by saying that it's anti-racist to take that position, which is like it sounds that sounds very counterintuitive. It's not that does not reflect reality, but they will point to instances of you know, anti-Black U.S. Um, U.S. medicine, for example, you know, like the Tuskegee uh, experiments, and then say, 
this is why we shouldn't trust the U.S. government on any of this, right? Because look what they've done in the past. And it's like that logic makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways, right? But, you know, they, they obviously ignore the impacts that, you know, anti-vax uh, and COVID has had on, you know, Black and other uh, POC populations, right? So I think, I don't know if it's exact, like, I don't know if it is appearing as hypocrisy to those people and then the, their audiences too, right? Because I think they're able to spin it in this in this way. Yeah, but I, I think I think my my th- my argument here is I, I I don't think those are the same. I don't think those are the same bases. Like I I don't I don't think that the majority of the tanky base are people who are anti-vaxxers. And you know you you, you can see a line of this right of of you know like one of the big things that like they they're they're obsessed with sort of like with the Cuban healthcare system. Right. And like Cuba's uh, Cuba's vaccines, you see this stuff from them a lot. And, you know, and they also talk about like, yeah, like China's doing really well at hitting COVID. And I, I don't think those positions are like, I, I don't think those people are the same people who are also turning around and then talking about how, like, you know, talk doing the experiments, the vaccines are actually like racism thing. I think I think there's some overlap between them, but but I don't think that those bases line up enough for it to you know not have the effect of just kind of like tearing them apart as their media people f- flip into into one of the sort of camps and and I, I think the other thing like you know if, if you look at what's happening with like uh like max blumenthal right now is that he's just like full-on like like he's just full-on touring with like just straight up right wingers to an extent that even like even people who've been habituated by the sort of like Syria false flag stuff into sort of working with right wingers, like you can't look at these people that, you know, it's just these actually just like Republican operatives and be like, well, okay, we're, we're on the side of these people and also like support Cuba. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I have, I have some faith in, these groups being separate and there being a, there being a, a point of cognitive dissonance where the system breaks down. Cause I, I, I guess I, I've seen people who have gotten out of tankyism by having to interact with the actual CCP. And, and that, 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 that gives me hope that there's, there, there's, there's a point of cognitive dissonance at which it falls apart. And I don't know, I maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just sort of, like hopiuming here but i feel like it's so interesting how like there are a lot of people for whom politics is a parlor game yeah and not their everyday like lived experience like i would not be so like i like if i see my communities struggling um and when people are dying or people are really like struggling with intergenerational trauma, I'm not going to sit here and pontificate and theorize about like um, things that don't impact my communities. Um, and yeah, like the, the, the angle about class is so important here because it's like a lot of people can't insulate themselves from like the broader communities around them. Like if you're going around saying untruths in the media and your communities are like, Hey, that, that makes no sense. Like um, if you're actually connected to people, like, like 
you would hopefully, unless you're just a big asshole, <laughs> um, you, you would hopefully take some accountability for what you're saying. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just, I just worry because this pandemic has also like really isolated people. Yeah. Like they, people are not like talking to each other and that makes it more easy for people to, to be like, Oh, I'm, I'm just right. Like, this is my perspective. And I just, yeah, I think about that, the conditions in which we come to certain conclusions, like the conditions under which we become more vulnerable to culty type things or like oversimplified like understandings of history because like I feel like the the anti-vax uh like not taking the vaccine being uh anti-racist is a very like manipulative like argument because it ignores the fact that these experiments um, on Black and Indigenous people in North America and beyond are, like, about neglect and uh, are about um, deliberately, a deliberate ongoing genocide and how, how, like, it's completely understandable for, for people to not trust the government, but, but, like, when the vaccine is actually a tool of protecting people, like, there's not a lot of like campaigns other than people who are uh, rooted in disability justice saying, hey, vaccines are like here to protect us. And how can we make how can we make like a like how can we resist the medical industrial complex enough such that we can make people feel safer taking the vaccine? Mm-hmm. How can we bring people in as opposed to fear-mongering because I think that fear is so powerful it's like once you're afraid you're you're not gonna you're not gonna even look into the research right so I don't know it's for me I just think of all of this as like manipulation and human psychology on a on a like broad social basis because it's like the the stage is a big cult and these little groups are little cults yeah yeah yeah, do, do you two have any other uh, things you want to say before we head out? Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Year of the Tiger. I'm yeah. looking forward to retweeting art, like, actually. <laughs> in okay, February, I guess, not January 1st. Yeah, we, yeah, we should, I think my, okay, okay. Clo- clo- closing less depressing question. Yeah, what, what, what do you think is the etiquette on retweeting uh, like yeah, re- retweeting like you're the tiger art before the actual before like Lunar New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been torn on it because I just I I like the art, but also I'm like it's not the year yet. I haven't seen any. I guess I, I guess I'm lucky. <laughs> I have been either guilty or just. <laughs> Not guilty, depending on how you see it. Like, I have retweeted all of the tiger art on January 1st because I did not care. I wanted to see the tigers. Um, But I hope that I see more tigers, like, in the coming days because if the tigers aren't coming or if we aren't retweeting it, 
that that is an issue like yeah. there needs to be like a second like a like a like a like like an like a second wave of the tiger art yes. um no pressure to all of the artists yeah. <laughs> well all right so if if people want to find you or work that you have that you want people to find uh where where, where can they do that or if you also do not want them to find you, that is completely also valid. Uh, the internet is terrible and a mistake. Yeah, I'm mostly in do not perceive me mode. Um, but <laughs> completely if, valid. If you want to check uh, out Laosan stuff, feel free. Uh, com. It's good work. My social media is um, Kipagal Poetry. Um, on Instagram, I uh, am... I have this graphic that I've turned into a sticker and it's it raises funds for families who were affected by the fires and floods. Um, it's a sticker that says immunocompromised people are worth protecting and it went viral multiple times. So I guess I cannot help but be perceived at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i don't know yeah all poetry yeah this this is what happens when you create things that are uh, both incredibly politically powerful and also gorgeous so yeah uh be 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 cursed with uh the reward for good work which is also being perceived <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well you, you can find uh you can find us at happen here pod on twitter and instagram there's the cool zone. You can find it. Uh, yeah, go 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 retweet Tiger Art. Uh, go throw a brick at your sheriff. Uh, non-actionable, and yeah, destroy the American and Chinese states. Happy New Year's. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. It could happen here is the podcast that this is about things falling apart and how to how to how to maybe unfall them apart. Uh, I'm Robert Evans, uh, your 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 host, and your other hosts are Christopher uh, and Garrison, and our producer Sophie. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Great. Uh, how's every uh, how, How's everybody feel about war? Uh, oh, like, uh, yeah. One now, if you were to favorites. guess based on your knowledge of history, what generation of war we're in right now? What would you what What would y'all guess? <sighs> I feel like war isn't it's 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 newer in relation to like human beings like the idea of war I'm guessing like there's been like battles but like the idea of like war I feel like isn't super old compared to how long there's been humans walking around so I don't know this is maybe I mean I I know the answer but like it's it's <laughs> like I don't know like it's, it's definitely we definitely passed through like at least a couple of stages and we're mm-hmm. in something. at least a couple yeah. Chris, like, got, got, gotta be got, at least twelve. Twelve, okay, at least wow. twelve. You are way ahead of William S. Lind, who spoilers <laughs> is the guy who came up with the concept of fourth generation war, which is what this episode is about, right? One of the things when we talk about things falling apart is um, the 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 unsettling growth of a number of different hybrid conflicts. Ukraine being the most like uh, blatant modern example, Syria being the deadliest example in our lifetimes, but like these weird hybrid conflicts that are a mix of shit happening on the internet and like disinformation going out all over the world. You could even think to like what was happening in Bolivia a year or so back and like all those weird accounts that were like based around Langley, Virginia claiming to support the military coup. And you can look at like uh, from the same, this disinformation brought out by like the Russian state that is usually as part of like a conflict either you know, they have disinfo operations in Syria, disinfo operations around the conflict in, in Ukraine that are kind of designed to muddy the issues and to detract international support and also to like drum up support within for like in the, in the case of Ukraine, you had like this media blitz against the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state in favor of like a more uh, like traditionally Russian um, uh, style of government in the East. And like that led to this breakaway republic that was supported by the Russian government. And like, so these are like hybrid conflicts is kind of how these are referred to. And there was a guy named William S. Lind, who in 1989 wrote uh, a book with a couple of US military analysts. Like he was an analyst for the military. He was not serving in the military. The other guys he wrote this this thing with were serving at the time. And they wrote this this book kind of trying to – basically what Lind was doing, he was very influenced by our loss in Vietnam. When I say our here, like the loss of the, the American state uh, in Vietnam, 
And he was trying to determine, like, number one, kind of like find a way to codify and explain the changes that were happening to warfare in this period. He was also influenced by what was happening in Afghanistan, what the Russians were experiencing, um, and find a way to like move forward and allow the United States to win wars again, right? Like that was William S. Lind's goal. Um, and so he he came up with this concept of four, or he and some other guys came up with what they called fourth generation warfare. Um, and first generation warfare is like Napoleonic era warfare. So like as Garrison was saying, you may note that he kind of starts his that's like, pretty late. That's yeah. pretty late. We had yeah, a lot of wars before the sixteen hundred or the eighteen hundreds. Like, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that yeah. leads up to like. I, yeah, I, if I was going to try to categorize different types of warfare, that would not be the one I start with. <laughs> Well, and uh, like the reality, of course, as we'll talk about, like when you start looking at different kinds of warfare, is there's wars that look remarkably like the shit going on in Afghanistan and Ukraine that are occurring like several thousand years ago. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, some it, of those in like like in the same places too. Like, yeah, it's like, well, it, it just like if you wanted to, if you wanted to talk about like kind of the modern style of wars that we saw and that we've seen really in the last like hundred and fifty years, they're not all that dissimilar in a lot of ways from like the kind of conflicts you saw between Rome and Carthage, um, which yeah, are these yeah. really like big nation state style conflicts and and have a lot of similarities but but William S Lynn described the first generation of warfare as beginning after the peace of Westphalia in 1648 that ended the 30 years war um, and it's the kind of warfare where you have these like big tightly ordered groups of men marching towards each other and like firing very inaccurate yeah. weapons in mass together right uh, this is ended by the era of the machine gun and the semi-automatic rifle um, or in the, on the bolt reaction rifle, I should say. And that leads us to second generation warfare, which is linear fire and movement with heavy reliance on indirect fire. So that's still huge groups of guys charging, but they're not marching in close order. They're not like firing in volleys. Yeah. Um, and they're supported by heavy artillery, like World War I kind of shit, right? Um, really, we, we start to see this in like 1870, and then World War I is kind of the height of this kind of warfare. And over the course of World War I, we merge, and again, this is William S. Lynn's way, we merge from second generation to third generation warfare, which is where you've got infiltration tactics to bypass enemy defensive lines okay. and collapse it, which is kind of the Germans and, and their Auftragstaktik and stormtrooper tactics are really kind of uh, pioneering that. You've got the idea of defense in depth. Um, and so this need to bypass the enemy and like this leads to Blitzkrieg and leads to all sorts of shit. Um, and then that kind of starts to collapse in Lin's estimation around Vietnam, and you get what's called fourth generation warfare. Uh, fourth generation, I'm actually just going to read a quote from a military history wiki that I thought had a pretty good description of all of this. Fourth generation warfare is normally characterized by a violent non-state actor fighting a state. This fighting can be physically done, such as by modern examples Hezbollah or the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam. Um, in this realm, the VNSA, these violent non-state actors, use all three levels of fourth generation warfare. These are the physical, actual combat, which is considered the least important, mental, the will to fight, belief in victory, etc., and the moral, which is the most important, Lind says, and includes cultural norms, etc. Um, so obviously, I, I think that this is kind of nonsense. There's a lot of people – so there's a lot of folks, the, the people who buy into this, and it's very popular on the right, will we'll look at like what's happening in Ukraine. It's a perfect example of fourth-generation warfare because you have Russia flooding the zone using Sputnik and a bunch of other kind of media organizations to drum up um, discord and like anger between East and West in Ukraine uh, and support for potential Russian action at the same time as you have them backing this dictator. Um, and then you have like the West sort of supporting the, the people protesting against – 
those dictators and like so you've got like this this digital conflict this information conflict that eventually leads to fighting on the ground one of the areas in which i think Lind is really off is is talking about like the physical as the least important, especially if you're going to consider Ukraine an example of fourth generation warfare, because if the Russian military had not intervened, there would not still be a conflict in Ukraine. The separatists would not still hold land. And in fact, the separatists were on the edge of getting completely wiped out by the Ukrainian military because they were a bunch of non-state actors with minimal support and minimal weaponry before the Russians moved in brigades of active duty combat troops and armor, um, including like gigantic fucking missile launchers, which they used to shoot down uh, that Malaysian Airlines flight. Like it, it, it's just not I, – I don't think that, that what, what Lind is saying is very um, – very well describes what's actually going on in the world. But it is important to understand the concept of fourth generation warfare and fifth generation warfare, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, because it is so useful in the way in which particularly guys like Steve Bannon um, conceive of conflict, because they you, you will hear the term fourth generation warfare constantly. And it's also something that is used a lot within our military establishment. Now, a lot of people hate it. And within, you can find a lot of papers by dudes writing like analysts who are working for the Defense Department, for the Army actively like shitting on Lind and talking about how he's at, at best is kind of like reinvented ideas that have existed in warfare for thousands of years and he's kind of summarized things in a way that that is un needlessly flattening and like some people will say you basically like ripped up, like added the internet to Clausewitz uh, and pretended that you'd invented a new style of conflict or that you defined a new style of conflict. Anyway, that's like an introduction to the idea of fourth generation warfare, right? And there's a lot of things that he gets again, like if you're if you're a history, a military history wonk, which Lind pretends to be, a lot of shit that he gets wrong. Um, so one of the things that he says, uh, like one of his famous phrases, that every military eventually craps in its own mess kit. Um, the idea that like every military that that is great eventually like has a gigantic fuck up because they get too used to doing the same thing, which is true. Um, and he describes it as like um, the Prussians did it in 1806, after which they designed and put into service a much more improved model mesh kit, uh, mess kit through the Scharnhorst military reforms. The French did it in 1870, after which they took down from the shelf an old model mess kit, the mass draft army of the First Republic, and put it back into service. The Japanese did it in 1945, after which they threw their mess kit away, swearing they would never eat again. And we did it in Korea, in Vietnam, and now in four new wars. So far, we've only we've had the only military that's just kept on eating. And that's a really dumb statement. That's all really historically inaccurate. So, yeah. for example, it's true that, like, the Prussians had a great military, which then got its butt kicked by Napoleon, and they had to completely redesign it. And by the time 1870 came around, they were extremely dominant on the battlefield against the French. Number one, he's crediting the military reforms of, like, tactics and strategy and ignoring things like Krupp inventing an entirely new kind of cannon that was utterly dominant on the battlefield. Um, he's also ignoring the fact that this Prussian army – um, he's saying like the U.S. is the only army that does the same thing over and over again and fails and keeps on eating. Well, the Prussian army is the army the Germans took into battle in World War One and Two. And spoilers, they didn't learn enough yeah. from either of those wars. <laughs> um, he also talks about how like the French had their, you know, crapping in the mess kit moment in 1870 after the Franco-Prussian War and they changed their army and it was much better. And I was like, well – 
they didn't win World War One. Like they were on the side that won. But if it had been them against Germany, they would have gotten fucking <laughs> steamrolled. Like it was not going well for them for quite a while, and they lost a whole generation of young men. So maybe, and and again, this is like what, what he's saying is basically we because we're losing so constantly. The reason that we're losing is not because we are picking bad conflicts. It's not because we're picking to engage in conflicts when we shouldn't at all be engaging in conflicts. It's not because we use military force in like a fundamentally venal and corrupt way in order to benefit a small cabal of uh, military industrial corporations. It's because we we don't have good battle doctrine, and that's why we're not winning in these conflicts, which ignores everything about the reality of the conflicts that like he's talking about. Like the, the problem is not a lack of combat dominance, which is, is what you were seeing with like the Prussians fighting Napoleon. It's what you were seeing with the French fighting the Germans uh, in 1870, right? Like in those cases, the Prussians had a massive failure of combat dominance against the French and the, the French had a massive failure in combat against the Germans. Their doctrine was just worse. Um, U.S. soldiers are great at getting into gunfights and great at winning gunfights. The problem is not a lack of combat combat ability. The problem is that there's no way to win the conflicts that we're getting into. They are unwinnable wars uh, that were never things that, like, there, no amount of change in doctrine would have made Afghanistan a success, because yeah, it like, was a if, stupid war. <laughs> yeah, like, it, like if, if, if that were true, like, coin would have worked. Mm -hmm. And coin, yeah. no, like, coin counterinsurgency. absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, just complete, total, and utter failure, like, enormous numbers of people dead, enormous numbers of, like, people traumatized for generations, and the U.S. still just lost both wars. Yeah. It's just... And and, and, and if you really dig into Lind and others like him, what they're actually saying when they say that, like, we need to reform, like, the way the military works with new battle doctrines, we need to be killing even more people. We just didn't kill enough in Vietnam, like the five million we bombed or so. That wasn't enough people. Like, that. that's the reform that he's really talking about. Um, is, is Lynn one of those people who like rants about the, uh, like the, the, the El Salvadorian option? Um, like, I'm sure he does. I don't know exactly what he said about El Salvador. He's a fascinating kind of fascist. Um, he is absolutely a fascist. He was the director of the Center for Cultural Conservatism at the Free Congress Foundation. Um, he wrote a, or he helped to, to popularize a declaration of cultural independence by cultural conservatives, um, which is like these... It, 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 there's yeah. a lot of the seeds of the shit that we're seeing today, right? That like American culture and institutions are being collapsed because of like liberal decadence and conservatives, cultural conservatives should separate themselves and like set up parallel institutions. Oh, um, and so eventually that secede. is where Bannon comes in. and That's where that's Bannon how, comes in. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah, like yeah. fucking Andrew Torba and Gab come in. They all advocate this shit. Yeah, because they're um, all, they, they all adhere to that kind of, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, like politics as culture. Uh, and and type, like, there's downstream yeah. thing. And there's some weird differences with Lind. Like, he's a huge mass transit and urban rail advocate, which I guess I agree I mean, with him on. Like, fine. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, a bad yeah. person does have a good opinion. He loves he loves him some fucking city trains and stuff. Yeah. Um, but he's also, he was a major factor. He was one of the earliest, like, prominent conservatives who was, like, yelling about cultural Marxism in kind of the modern political period. I mean, that makes um, sense because he was yeah. real into, it sounds like he's real into metapolitics. So yes, yeah, he's that, super into metapolitics. Yeah. So like all of this stuff makes a whole lot of sense. If you're, yeah, if, if you're, uh, if, if you, if you know what, if you know what metapolitics are, it's also kind of explains how he developed the different generations of warfare using it through a framework of metapolitics yeah, actually it, really if, makes that fit. If you believe like Breitbart 
famously stated that like politics is downstream from culture. And if you also believe what Klaus, I think it was Clausewitz that said that like war is politics by other means, then yeah. like you can make cultural All changes that sense. can cause wars. And like, yeah, like that's a, a lot, like kind of, I think the thought process behind I mean, Lynn. Yeah, because this this really defines what he means by fourth generation warfare of war being handed out specifically by the culture instead of having it be abstracted to be like people mm -hmm. marching towards each other with guns. Because yeah. he's, 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 he's putting the culture kind of back into it. Yeah, and he and he's and he's and it, and obviously culture was never not a factor. In, of course in not. No, like yes. every single war has <laughs> yeah. been a major factor. Like all of this shit he talks about as being characteristic of fourth generation warfare has been happening in one way or another for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's it's not that these things are done in like temporal succession. It's yeah. like because like a lot of the stuff that makes up fourth generation warfare, like the more like guerrilla warfare aspects, come way before. People with guns marching towards each there other. There were fucking right? Afghans was... doing that to Alexander the goddamn Great yeah, like, like, before like, the birth of yeah. Christ. <laughs> a lot of a lot of this fourth gen stuff is actually like kind of more similar mm. to what original warfare probably would have been like. Um, yeah, which I I think he I think to to his credit I think he does actually recognize that at some point in his writing. No, and, and and the thing about this is while we can pick at it, and I think there is a lot that's ridiculous in his attitude. It's it's close enough to the way that reality works that if you're going if you're thinking about conflict in this framework, you can be very successful. It's not yeah. like an it, it, it's inaccurate in some ways because he's he is wrongly describing why certain things work. I think is a lot of what he's doing, and he's wrong about winning wars. I'll say that. Um, if if the American military were to make the fucking Lind the the Secretary of Defense and give him total power, like he would keep on losing wars as hard as we've been losing wars for everyone listening to this his lifetime. Um, but in a cultural sense, the kind of culture jamming, which is a term we'll talk about more in the future, and the, but the kind of like the the propaganda arms and stuff in order to the 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 media warfare in order to either incite or justify real conflict or or and this is one of the areas in which they have been really effective to alter the dimension to alter how internationally a, a conflict is responded to so one of the big successes of people like this has been effectively eliminating any kind of left wing support for mo liberatory movements in the Middle East, um, for liberatory movements or for like just like what's happening in Ukraine, this kind of like reflexive well, if there's uh, if there's a a movement for liberation among the people of a country, it's probably the CIA, like yeah. uh, like carrying out some sort of op. Um, that's Lind and his people, um, and people influenced by him have been a big part of pushing that. Um, it's why Steve Bannon is in and fuck is so friendly with like some guys on like chunks of they call themselves the left and whatnot. It's because. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ties there, and that is an area in which they've been successful because international support really matters. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, and and I think like the death of internationalism is one of the bigger successes that like these these thinkers have kind of had. But yeah, uh, I don't know. That's 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 a chunk of what I had to say. You guys want to know more about William S. Lind because he's <laughs> I'm, I'm, I certainly want to learn more about William S. So, Lind. William S. Lind, cultural conservative, right? Big on the con the traditional Christian values of America. You you want to guess who he considers his ideal leader? Uh, JFK. No, the House of Hohenzollern. He's oh. a Prussian monarchist. Wait, oh. no, is he a Hegel <laughs> guy? 
Oh my! Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I think he's, no, yes, no, yeah, yeah. This is, is okay. Everything's if clicking into. Tibet, if he's into Tibetan politics, he's certainly into Hegel. And he thinks that the Prussian, oh. the Prussian oh, monarchy no. was the best government there ever was, and was like yeah. unfairly crushed by the rest of the world, and like should have won World War One, and everything would, and, and like he's he's and so oh. he's he's very much like a conservative monarchist, <laughs> um, and a weird kind because like my God, dude, if you're looking at like monarchs who were like the the Hohenzollerns had like in the modern era like the first Kaiser Wilhelm was broadly competent but like it went to shit as soon as yeah. Wilhelm the second and he blames all of World War One on um the fucking czars like it's it's, yeah, yeah, okay. it's very you silly know, like his have, ideas of history are like very stupid I, I, ha- I have an incredibly silly theory of history based on Hegel which is that like Every explain every Hegel 40, briefly for the listeners. I uh, no, do not Hegel. <laughs> this is this is you know, this is this is the thing. Okay, okay. This this is this is this is my crank theory of history based on Hegel, which is that every about forty years, someone attempts to apply Hegel. Someone like takes charge of an incredibly large state and tries to use Hegel to run it. And mm-hmm. every single time, they don't understand the dialectic and it doesn't work. So this, for example, like if, if you, you take this as a, on, a, on a very sort of granular level, right? You have Mao. Mao has no idea what a dialectic is. You you can read Mao's work; he has no clue. Like he just doesn't. He he like he doesn't he doesn't get it. He thinks that a dialectic is when one person with a bat hits the other hits the other side, and then when you destroy the other side, the dialectic is resolved, right? Like that that's not what it is, right? Uh, Mao, like be, 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 because of this. The entire Chinese Revolution just implodes. Everyone dies. It returns to capitalism. It's a complete failure, right? Uh, the, you know, and, and like a, a lot of the Nazis are very much into Hegel. They have a, again incredibly similar failures. The other group of people, like Lind, I think, is is part of this. Is that all of the people who planned the Iraq War were like enormous Hegelians, right? But they 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 they'd gotten to Hegel through this weird like. They they they'd been doing this. They'd been doing these counterinsurgency stuff, and so but their counterinsurgency stuff was they read Mao. And, you know, so they're, so they're, they're reading Hegel, but then they're also reading Hegel through Mao, and Mao doesn't understand what's going on either. And so when they try to apply the Hegelian dialectic, and they're like, okay, well, the end of, the end of, the, the end of history, the end of the Hegelian dialectic is the United States, so we were, we're just going to impose this on Iraq. And it, catastrophic failure. So the, the, the moral of the story is, do not attempt to apply Hegel. You will completely annihilate your entire political movement, like every every everything everything you love and dream of, everything like every ideology you've ever had, uh, it will it will crumble beneath you, and uh, yeah, you will watch your cities you will watch your cities and armies burn. That's that's fine because when I start my resistance movement, we're just going to be post-Kantian, object-oriented, on ontologist <laughs> you, terrorists. You guys, you, you guys are just going fine. through a bunch of names, and I'm going to get like eighty percent of people are just. What the, no, why the fuck so am I hearing the, about these dead people? The thing I actually wanted to to bring up mm-hmm. on this is like how fourth and fifth gen uh, the the ideas of fourth and fifth gen get applied onto like more insurrection-based um, like uh, revolts or groups, right? You can see like groups like the Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front kind of p- pick and choose elements of the fourth and fifth generation warfare to kind of st- to see how their groups formed or were operated. Um, and even you could argue that like Ted Kaczynski was like a fifth, a fifth generation warfare because he, he was completely autonomous and the, the actions... Okay, let's, were, let's were, introduce were to... the idea of fifth generation because we just All talked right. about fourth generation warfare, which was Lynn's idea. Fifth generation warfare is a concept that was come up I believe Daniel Abbott is his name. Um, and the idea was that like 
it, it's a new type of warfare that like characterizes a lot of conflicts in the modern era where almost everything is non-kinetic, um, yeah. but it is still military action. Um, so military social engineering, misinformation, cyber attacks, not just like decentralized, but like states actually using um, organized and often fighting non-state actors who are using kind of the same Who are doing means. the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and it, this in, in, in a lot of this would involve artificial intelligence, fully autonomous system, systems, not just botnets, but like algorithms that can like handle a lot of the quote-unquote fighting. Um, William S. Lind hates the idea of fourth genera- fifth-generation warfare because he's a narcissist and he doesn't like anyone using <laughs> other <laughs> ideas than his own. <laughs> See, he misapprehended um, the dialectic. It, go- it keeps going. Yeah. So what I was what what I was thinking is like is like a lot of you can apply fifth generation warfare to like these types of groups who are mostly like they 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 do some they do some fourth gen tactics in terms of like terrorism right like mm-hmm. they 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 try to make political statements through terrorism and have terrorism be an influential thing but their demand like you rarely. Like fifth generation stuff has not been around long enough, and no one's really been super successful at it in the past enough time for us like to like recognize that, right? Because you can look at a lot of a lot of like uh, insurrectionary type stuff around like the again. I'm just going to use the Earth Liberation Front as an example of like a group that attempted kind of these types of tactics, Um, and they may have succeeded in the physical sense, but they did not succeed in like the cultural sense, really. so trying to like look at these types of things and how they relate to like specific, you know, if you're going to use like the Ted Kaczynski example, same thing, except he's not a group. He's just one person, which is kind of more of a fifth gen thing. So he is like fully autonomous. Whereas I think, uh, you know, stuff like the ELF tried to have that kind of militant group dynamic that is more similar to fourth generation warfare. So it's like this picking and choosing of like yeah. trying, to, trying to do physical action, then trying to do cultural action. And it's it's not like the things that have succeeded let's take for instance um the uh the the defend the uh cascadian forest thing who just got just got um this this the specific action they they were working on to protect a specific chunk of the forest uh the judge uh, approved their uh, approved their motion because they were they actually were successful because they did not form this militant thing right now they were just doing the cultural and it actually really succeeded um, as opposed to just, you know, burning down buildings and stuff to try to get your action forward. So just trying to look at, like, examples of when, when like, the goal is kind of the same and certain types succeed, certain, certain types don't, how that might influence, like, organizing and how to selectively use, like, insurrection, but have it not be, like, a default mode for, like, always your group is better if it's insurrectionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things that does characterize that I think is useful, if we're, because again, I, I have my criti- criticisms of of the value of any of these like phrases as kind of discrete concepts. But one of the things that I think is useful about the concept of fifth generation warfare that does talk about something that is legitimately new to conflict that has not really existed before before the internet is omnipresence. Um, that that the conflicts are not limited in geographical space or in time, and in fact is like a constant factor all around you at all times, um, because of the way the information sphere kind of f- actually functions. Um, it, it you know you can look at kind of like the 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 mix of street fights and in- information warfare, doxing and and whatnot between fascists and anti-fascists for the last few years. It's omnipresent. It's always going on. Um, and the battle space is kind of potentially everywhere, even though it's fairly rarely kinetic or physical. Um, 
and and I do think that that's an area in which um, it, it is really worth having a new term and kind of defining a new term because that's one of the few things I think that has legitimately changed. Uh, the internet's made all of this stuff that's been happening for thousands of years faster. Um, yeah. But the thing that it's really created that was not present before is this the this omnipresence. Um, so I do think that that's really useful when we yeah because like kind I would like to how conflict is different. Would like to kind of like think about like January sixth within these frameworks, right? Of how of how disinformation and information was used relatively successfully to get a lot of people to actually move towards the more. Uh, you know, kind of backed by half the state, backed, you know, not backed by, well, the larger majority. And yeah, how, like, it's a it's like a synthesis of the fourth generation and fifth generation ideas, which is why, you know, there's a lot of overlap with these terms specifically. Um, but seeing how, like, one leads to another and it's not, they're not necessarily exclusionary. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, the result is whether they win or lose, right? Yeah. That's, that's like, that's what makes it a war is, is the, is the, is like you decide afterwards based on the result. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, yeah. It, it, that's certainly like how more modern wars happen. Like with Afghanistan, it wasn't so much like a clear, like World War One. there's an armistice this, and like yes, a negotiated yeah, yeah. end of the war and at a certain date it all ends. It was a but lot we haven't, messier as I'm we sure haven't we done that remember. since We haven't done that for the state. Like, you know, I've never known the states to do that for my No, because if you don't life. do that, you don't have to admit you lost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, right? <laughs> if you just kind of like leave and shit gets real fucked up, um, you can just be like, for one thing, you can say like, ah, if we'd stayed and spent more money on that war, we could have we could have pulled it out. Um, which is one of my like, there's a lot of great criticisms of how the Biden administration handled things in Afghanistan last year, a thousand of them. But at the end of the day, it's like, it was never going to be good. <laughs> like it was always, it was this horrible war. We were killing way too many people. Um, we weren't achieving anything. And that fact was made really clear by the fact that as soon as we pulled out our guns, um, everything collapsed. Uh, and that was always going to happen. And you can needle around the edges of how we could have, you know, better taken care of people who we'd made promises to or whatever. But at the end of the day, it was always going to be fucked because it was a thing we never should have done. And that, that's like this idea that Lind has that like, no, if we fix our doctrine, we have better tactical doctrine. We have better like we have the, his, one of his big ideas is um, he, he came up with this concept called movement warfare that's been hugely influential in the way the Marine Corps functions. Um, and the idea behind movement warfare is like you, you should always have a bias towards action. And Lind is very consciously um, trying to make this basically the evolution of, of a German tactic called Auftragstaktik, which is like individual unit tactics, basically. So it, like midway through World War I, the Germans start to realize like all these mass wave human charges aren't working great. Um, and we should probably like figure out a way to get around these defenses. So they start training what are kind of the prototype of special forces, these like stormtroopers whose job is to like sneak in and not be seen and jump into the trenches and like, you know, with fucking axes and clubs and, and automatic handguns and um, fight in a way that like soldiers had not really fought in a long time. A lot of it was like melee. It was this really, and there were a lot of technical things, how to get around barbed wire, how to not be seen, how to like deal with machine gun nests. Um, and one of the keys to it was like the German started to retrain their soldiers to where like you have to have like these individual units of five and 10 men have to have like total autonomy and then unit commanders have to have autonomy and they need to be will able to like, we'll tell them we need you to be in this, this place at this point in time, but it's up to you to figure out how to do that. Because if you're, if you've got 
this one guy who's three miles back giving the commands. Everyone's just going to get mowed down by machine gun fire. It needs to be more nimble. Um, and that's part of why in World War One and in World War Two, because the rest of the, the, the people fighting the Germans, like even the U.S., had not caught up to this kind of battle doctrine by the time World War Two was over um, to the extent that the Germans had. And it's part of why there's such a lopsided casualty ratio in favor of the Germans in that war is they had – what is very close to – because all modern combat tactics are based on what the Germans started doing at the end of World War I um, and had really like nailed down to a science in World War II. Um, and Lind is saying that like we need to extend that and like that's the thing we've gotten too far away from and we need to have – you need to have like this bias towards movement and this – the like officers need to be super aggressive and like always pursuing these kind of kinetic options. And again, as the Marine Corps battle record will show, it, this is very effective when you're getting into gunfights. But when was the last time the Marine Corps was on the side of a winning war? Like, again, it doesn't we can all needle about how to make our troops better at like killing people. But at the end of the day, we're losing wars because we're getting into wars that are not winnable. And that's not something you're going to fix with battle doctrine. And and Lin yeah. doesn't understand that because he's a fascist. <laughs> and I, I think it's just like this. This is the real like weakness of their politics, which is that it's like yeah, well, like it's, it's they're 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 trying. It's like they they can't tell the difference between war and like they they don't think there's a difference between war and politics, right? Yeah, and that means that they they think that there's a military solution to every political problem, and it's like. No, there's not, and like this is this is how and this is how this is how they keep destroying themselves, right? Is that they they they, you know, it, like like th this is what happened to the neocons, right? I mean, the neocons are sort of held on in this mm -hmm. kind of rump shell, but it's like neoconservatism, yeah. And how they're just the Lincoln Project, <laughs> yeah. But but it's like you know, like they don't they don't have like like even the people who used to be their base like aren't their base anymore, right? no. Like those those people are all moved on because that shit to, doesn't like, work. Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 like maybe they could have maintained it if they hadn't just like literally blown it apart like trying to conquer a rock and it's like they, they they all do this they all eventually are like well okay we'll we'll find a military solution to this and it blows up in their face because it turns out that no you can't actually do this i mean i think all this indicates a general progression into the more metapolitics idea and and culture as politics idea is that we're, we're trying to solve all these political problems at least, at least uh, like locally within us, you know, we're trying to we're trying to do them culturally and choose through them selectively in other countries, right? Because the more kind of my, the, the idea of like let's just keep entering wars, which we're also doing at the same time, but only for very 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 like speci like very specific regions. But I mean, the the trend of like versus you know like Trump's not necessarily in, like Trump's not really a neocon. He preferred the cultural jamming like that was that was his preferred method and it got him relatively far in four and, years and there there's an argument that lind is a big person who that he learned a lot from lind I, even though i don't think he ever read his books all the people he surrounded him with were fans of lind there's a picture of trump and lind together and like a copy of or at least trump together with a copy of his book um which is titled uh, uh, The Next Conservatism. Um, and I, I'm going to read an, a quote at this point from uh, The American Conservative, which Lind has written for that describes this book because it, it's, it's uh, uh, useful. Um, the Next Conservatism offers a comprehensive agenda of what Lyndon Weyrich, who's his co-author on this, call, a cultural, call cultural conservatism. While the book aims higher than mere policy, the specifics mentioned are Trumpian, reductions in legal and illegal immigration, an America-first trade policy, and robust investments in domestic infrastructure, particularly streetcars and trains. In a less Trumpian vein, it also promotes homeschooling and incorporates some ideas of, from the new urbanism as part of a broader program called Retro Culture. Of its connection with Trump, Lind says the book runs parallel to what 
what he has been saying, but he doubts the billionaire's familiarity with its more philosophical ideas. Now, here's the part that is going to be really unsettling. And this, I think, is what Lind may actually be going for rather than any kind of reform in the military to improve its ability to win foreign wars. Quote, In 1994, an article appeared in the Marine Corps Gazette by Lind and two of the authors of the 1989 piece where he introduced the concept of fourth-generation warfare. It ended on a dire note. The point is not merely that America's armed forces will find themselves facing non-nation state conflicts and forces overseas. The point is that the same conflicts are coming here. The next real war we fight is likely to be on American soil. So that's what's going on here. Yep. Uh, Like... And that's the thing where bias towards action and increased killing power, if all you're really trying to do is murder everyone who disagrees with you using the military very quickly, well, that might work for you. People should know about this. He has a fucking fiction book called Victoria, which actually, if you go to like TV tropes, um, the uh, there's a TV, well, it's not just TV tropes anymore, but like there's a trope page for my book After the Revolution, and it's directly compared to Victoria as like they're the opposites of each other. Because Victoria is like a book about a civil war in the U.S. that these like weird fascist uh, uh, like monarchists win, and like it, it's uh, it's huh. pretty fucked up. Like the problem is that like 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 all of these like the Northwest is controlled by like uh, environmentalist like leaders who get like eaten by these animals like wolves that they reintroduce to the. To the society and like California is so feminist that it's illegal to have sex and make babies. Oh my god! Um, and the South fails because Ooh. it's it's too multicultural. Um, oh god! And yeah, Dude. like it's this it's is, all this is yeah. so cringy. So the yeah. person who wins the war is like the governor of Maine, who's uh, a retro culture practitioner um, and considers himself a subject of the Kaiser. <laughs> because. <laughs> Oh, no. I may be getting a couple of details wrong, but not that part I know. Like, it's it's a fucking nuts, nutso. I've only read, like, little bits of it. Maybe one day I'll get through the whole thing. That, but um, What a, what a it's sad bug nerd. It's fuck. Oh, no. That's the, that's the thing with all, with all of these, like, cultural jammers. Like, they try to put on, like, war aesthetics, but all of them are the nerdiest fuckers he'll ever meet. He's so stupid. And I like, I, like half he's of so them stupid claim to be at some actual things. wizards. All mm-hmm. of these guys are so they're so nerdy, all of them. Yeah. And the, like Lind, everything about him makes sense when you understand that his primary guiding directive is anger over the fact that there's no longer a Kaiser. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's, he's he's a lewd, but also like again, he was not lying about. And there's a picture of like Trump with this fucking book. He's not lying that like fucking everybody who was like p- pilled in that White House knew about Lynn's ideas and have been. He's yeah. been hugely influential, and not just among like the American right. His books have been found in like Al Qaeda hideouts and shit. Like he's that extre- makes sense though. That, that, yeah, that that, that that like all of all of that really tracks is because yeah, like the the barrier between like terrorist action as a part of fourth generation and in some ways fifth generation warfare and then the type of like c- culture jamming those things go hand in hand like that is mm-hmm. the, like that is the goal of it is is to make it work that way so that doesn't surprise me that those types of terrorist groups would be reading his books for advice or for like to like figure out how the other side thinks yeah all right. Well, that's probably enough talking about William S. Lind for today and, and cultural and uh, the fourth generation. We'll talk. There, there's a lot to dig into about how these ideas have influenced chunks of the right and how they're currently still being used for like 
these omnipresent conflicts that are going on right now. And again, I do think particularly the idea of omnipresence is really useful for understanding modern conflict. I would I would go so far as to say like crucial. Um, so it, it, this is necessary background information to people to have for people to have for like some of the other shit we're going to be continuing to talk in this uh, about in this series as we you know as we talk more about kind of kinetic conflicts or at least building towards kinetic conflicts. Um, but yeah, I think this is this is a useful kind of grounding. And now I'm going to send uh, Chris and Garrison off to write an episode explaining who Hegel is and everything he believed. I. Yeah, it's going to be great. You're going you're gonna to hear you. You will watch me go mad in real time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be great. Yeah. The other option is I can just read the Wikipedia page for Hegel with like a really offensive German accent. Uh, that's, that, that's better than that, reading Hegel. That actually Don't read sounds Hegel. better. I'm going to go to, um, I, I, will, I promise you one thing, which is that I will wind up either Russian or Australian by the end. I can't stop that drift when I, whenever I start doing, you know. Oh, I am a good German. Yeah, my name is Mr. Hegel. You can I follow believe us in on the Twitter, Instagram, at Happen hmm? Here Pod, yeah. or and follow at Cool Zone Media. We're going to stop that right now. Yeah, I probably should. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Omicron! Great timing. Mm-hmm. I love Omicron. I'm Robert Evans. This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about Greek numbering schemas. Garrison, <laughs> what do you what do you how do you how do you feel about Omicron? This has nothing to do with the topic <laughs> we're talking about. So this is this is an update. Uh, a few uh, right last week, we uh, earlier this week we discussed the uh, the the trucker we, uh, the, we the trucker convoy. Scheduled our episode recorded before the truck convoy for yes. after the truck convoy had already done a bunch of things. Yes. which was really good. Call so on our part. we 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 recorded to talk about the fifty thousand trucks that were that were going to show up at Ottawa and. Thing, things did happen. Maybe not that. Sure did. They um, did not because, like, but... I've been listening. Some of their claims are like, and Alex Jones is parroting them now that it was like eight hundred thousand to a million truckers, and there's uh. three hundred thousand truckers in all of Canada. Like, <laughs> 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 but it was lot. It was lot. It was a lot of people. Like, not to, not to yeah. downplay what happened. Yeah. So we're going to give an update on what happened there and kind of discuss maybe any ramifications that stuff like this could have going forward. But to help with that. Um, we have uh, Dan, who came on uh, last time to help discuss. Hello, thank you for coming on again to talk about the same thing. Thank you for having me. We last left off with you saying that you hope I don't come back on again, because that would be a good thing, and it would mean that uh, the bad things did not happen. So, sorry to be here under such shit circumstances. Yeah, so, you want to go over the bad? Yeah, let's, so... Let's- Let's let's briefly do a, do like a recap of like what this thing was like like why why was it happening and like what was the idea when we last left Canada a bunch of truckers <laughs> were angry that they had to present evidence <laughs> evidence of vaccination this spiraled into as I'm understanding it at some point them rejecting all public health measures uh yes actually the the exact demands are for the federal and provincial governments to quote terminate the vaccine passports and all other obligatory vaccine contact tracing programs uh to terminate covid vaccine mandates uh and quote respect the rights of those who wish to remain unvaccinated uh and here's where it gets weird uh cease the divisive rhetoric attacking canadians who disagree with government mandates kind of hard to say when that one's fulfilled Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, cease to limit debate through coercive measures with the goal of censoring those who have varying or incorrect opinions. That's what the convoy is for. I mean, do y'all know what a government is? <laughs> 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 uh, evidently. I, I was at some be- <laughs> debates in 2020 uh, with the state that went a lot uglier than it looks like this one went. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we mm-hmm. we, we, we can talk about that. This. The, uh, this, the standoff has been well. It's been just that. It's been a standoff uh, in that regard. So, <laughs> just, it seems like they've kind of hooliganed around a, a bunch of towns and threatened a homeless shelter uh, if they didn't give them food, and left tr- trash everywhere, and mm-hmm. set up a checkpoint on the border or just a blockade on the border. I think is probably more accurate. There's and, been blockades going on and off the border. Um, yeah. I think the most noteworthy is uh, in Alberta and Coot right now, but I might be pronouncing that wrong. And, and what was the police? Res- it was something along the lines of, we don't think there's like a policing solution to this problem. Oh, yeah. So you're totally up to date. That that happened today. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a little after 2.30 p.m. today, 
The Ottawa police chief, Peter Slowly, said in a press conference that, quote, there may not be a policing solution to this demonstration. Uh, is, it, is it really that easy? <laughs> it's evidently it's that easy if you wait till kind of like the media has had a few days and most of the coverage is just like breaking bad things still happening. Uh, so it's it's not great. So what what was the lead up on the set? Right. Because they, 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 they were all, they were all, all the trucks and caravans and stuff were supposed to arrive on Saturday. What was the lead up on Saturday like and like what, what, what happened on like the actual like first day? Yeah. So te- Saturday was technically the first day, actually Friday throughout the day. Uh, a yeah. lot of people started arriving. So the occupation's been uh, we're recording now Wednesday. Um, it, it started on Friday. And uh, the main, like the largest contingent of the convoy was staying overnight Friday night in a nearby town called Armfire, uh, west of Ottawa. And they moved in from Armfire to uh, Ottawa on Saturday morning. Uh, at the same time, people converged from other parts of Canada. Um, to Ottawa's east is Quebec, and to Quebec's east are the Maritime Provinces. And uh, 3,000 people at least came from Quebec and met uh, with the convoy too on Saturday, kind of coming in from different parts of the day between Friday night and Saturday afternoon. And Saturday was kind of the big day, the big party. Uh, the main point of contention and the main thing that happened was uh, some major streets are gridlocked by vehicles moving into the city, uh, into the very crowded core of Ottawa, my hometown, and staying stationary on busy roads. Uh, Both commercial and residential roads are part of this. Driveways for both businesses and residences were blocked off. Fire routes were blocked off. Ambulance routes are blocked off. Uh, Local businesses that stayed open had to close throughout the day Saturday, largely. Uh, Some managed to not, and many just stayed closed already because they knew what was going to happen. This happened, closures uh, that happened on Saturday are mostly still going on today as I'm speaking to you Wednesday night. Uh, closures followed patterns of harassment and some alleged assaults, which Robert mentioned before, also yeah. happened uh, at a homeless shelter in downtown Ottawa. And pretty much everyone I've spoken to, I've, I've been in Ottawa uh, visiting. It's my hometown. And uh, pretty much everyone I've spoken to who lives in the downtown core has had a slew of stories since Saturday of either harassment at work or just harassment walking through the streets. And the worst part of it all is that right now there's not a clear ending in sight. What is it like on the ground there in terms of, I know there's like kind of like a blockade around the border, but like what else is like around Ottawa? What's like, what, like, what, what is, what's it like to walk around in these places and like how big is the area that these people are staying at? Like, where are they staying at? Are, are, are they all sleeping in their trucks or staying at hotels? What's it, like, what's like the. It's an excellent question. There's a, there's a mix. So hotels were booked up uh, the week leading up to the weekend as, as the uh, new cycle kind of exploded. More and more people called into hotels in Ottawa. A lot of people actually brought tractors. Uh, people are also sleeping in their trucks. Uh, of course, if people have like family and stuff staying in Ottawa, sometimes they're staying with them. Um, it's a mix of everything. Actually, I, I know a guy who even his car was like blocked off uh, in the parking lot. He has to park in because it's downtown. He doesn't have street parking or, or driveway parking. Like it's in a public lot and he couldn't get his car out uh, for over a full day because an RV camper set up near him and just blocked him off. So it's a mix of everything. Uh, Starting on Saturday, there's like a lot of partying, a lot of music, a lot of kids. Uh, It's gotten a little bit more chaotic and less condensed since then. 
And also the area is hard to gauge because streets are actually constantly as uh, vehicles move out for one reason or another. Streets are kind of being retaken back organically by the city, uh, but then sometimes throughout the day getting retaken again back by the convoy. So the occupation has been a little fluid on some of the outside streets. Wellington Street, which is the street outside of Parliament in Ottawa, has been consistently uh, occupied, uh, to my knowledge, blocking off kind of, not actually blocking off, but you have to walk past them uh, as a pedestrian to get onto Parliament Hill. So that's where the kind of the core is the action, of the action is and everything else spreads out from that. And near hotels, uh, there's a little more action because that's generally where people are staying. How has members of parliament and like local politicians been reacting since Saturday? I, I know there was there was some videos of like uh, I think one of the MPs from Alberta was giving an interview that gained some traction online. Um, but yeah, just kind of curious, like how the like different government officials are talking about this. I'm actually so glad you asked that because uh, as of today, the divide. Uh, in members of parliament has actually led to some pretty incredible political ramifications. So last time we spoke, I think Aaron O'Toole had just earlier in the day uh, endorsed the convoy and said he'd be coming down. Aaron O'Toole, for those uh, unaware, is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, He's a real, the- o- real O'Toole. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Whoa. Mind blown. Yeah. No, one, no one could have seen that joke coming. Every every Canadian listener just like collectively <laughs> rolled their eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Aaron O'Toole had, had just uh, endorsed the convoy. He'd been getting some tough questions about it. Uh, following everything we just talked about and more, Aaron O'Toole walked that back uh, and said, you know, he didn't approve of, of the way that the convoy was acting in Ottawa. This led to a swift referendum on his leadership, and earlier today, Aaron O'Toole was voted out as the Conservative Party leader in Canada. And that does have pretty big ramifications. I know I I talked about Aaron O'Toole a decent amount in my previous Canada episodes for Kidnappin Here. Um, So yeah, that'll be really interesting to see who... uh, Do we have any idea of when the new person's going to try to get voted in? Like, when... When do you think that process is going to happen to fill that spot? I'm actually not sure. I haven't looked up uh, when it's going to happen. It feels like there's been months before where there's been yeah. leaders of the Conservative Party. Uh, the main concern right now for those outside uh, of conservative politics is because Aaron O'Toole was considered relatively moderate. Uh, I think yeah. you talked about in the Fascism Canada episode how Aaron O'Toole kicked out Darren Sloan from the party for uh, being pretty coy on donations from neo-Nazi Paul Franck. On his campaign, uh, overall, like that's a pretty great thing that Aaron O'Toole like, kicked him out of the caucus. Like, regardless of other elements of yeah. that leadership, uh, there's worrying that that kind of thought are... won't be continued forward. Especially because Sloan was also in the leadership race, and Sloan has only gotten further right since then. Yeah, it is. Just despite Aaron O'Toole's not great aspects, which there are lots of. He did. He did. He did take it. He did kind of hold back some of the more problematic uh, conservative uh, like elements, whether that be you know people from you know from the, his his own party like like Derek, and then also keeping kind of the People's Party stuff at bay. Um, yeah, and that will be an interesting kind of power struggle now. That will be something to observe. 
I think the thing that concerns me most about all of this is the implication of the implications for this as a tactic. We saw a version of this that was more limited in scope and time in Portland in 2020 when this huge Trump caravan rolled through downtown, blocked off big chunks of downtown and like just maced and shot people with paintball guns at random. And it was kind of like, I think everyone there was surprised at how many folks they got for it. Um, this is a much more evolved version of the same tactic. And it's kind of stuff we talked about in season one of It Could Happen Here, this idea of like people coming from these conservative majority areas in a place where the vast majority of people are liberal, but centralized in the cities um, and blocking those cities off or otherwise disrupting their ability to transit, um, potentially their ability to get things shipped in like food, um, like their ability to do, use free movement. Um, and we've seen pieces of this, again, in a bunch of places. In, in Oregon, during the wildfires, you had these rural communities setting up checkpoints and stuff looking for people from the cities that they could bill as Antifa. And it's this it's this world worrying trend for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you get 10, 20,000 people to do something like this, even if the city has hundreds of thousands of people, that's effectively too large a group to police. Um, and the police don't want to police it anyway. So there's not even really an attempt to stop them. Um, and it's a way in which the vast majority of Canada, uh, at least based on the polling I'm aware of, um, is is not in support of the causes these guys are backing. Was it like 76% of the country supports some level of like vaccine mandates? Um, if I'm remembering correctly, the last one I read. So this is not a popular movement. It's not even super do, popular among the truckers, like the no, actual, no, like, the, like most truckers in Canada. Matter, either. It no. doesn't even matter how many people are in the cities. You can get if you can get fifty, sixty thousand people to do something like this. The police yeah. won't will not take action, and you can negatively impact the lives of a huge number of, of people. millions and that's of people before it gets radical. Right? Yeah. That's absolutely. when these guys are not coming in with guns with the express plan to eliminate people or trying to specifically block up food. They're just kind of fucking around now. But it's this kind of, it's this thing we've talked about where you have, this is a thing in Canada and the United States, you had liberals kind of outsourcing the protection of society to this group of increasingly heavily armed and radicalized people who are now, in a lot of cases, fascists. Um, and that means that when there's a problem with a large chunk of people who hate everything you stand for the people that you have completely outsourced protection to are all in favor of fucking with you because they hate you. And it's it's a problem in Oregon. It's going to be a problem in fucking New York City or whatever at some point. It's a problem in Ottawa. Um, I don't know. Am I am I off base here? Am I you're, am I am you're am not I off base at all. And uh, like there isn't there isn't anything to to really elaborate on yeah. past what you said. The last time we spoke, I think, Robert, you said there's not a whole lot. Uh, was what you said that could really really be done with the vehicle op occupation tactic, and this unless, is to be unless a lot of people are willing to meet them with an equal force, which unfortunately yeah. Ottawa didn't have. Like it's a Ottawa's no. a Ottawa's a relatively large city uh, in Canada. It's, <clears throat> there's over a million people that live here. It's also by landmass, I think, the largest city in Canada, like east to west. It's it's very spread out, so it's a low mm -hmm. population density. So even the affected area downtown uh, is actually like pretty small in relation to the city itself, uh, which is pretty unfortunate. And like, it's not a particularly packed downtown for a large city yeah. downtown. I am, I am curious kind of on the violence aspect. Ha, um, has like, I know there's been like, um, 
of increase in like death threats to members of parliament, like specifically liberal members of parliament, specifically liberal members of parliament who are women who are maybe yeah. not white. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would be curious to see if, if you have any more kind of information on that side of things and then how, how violence has popped up in a few places throughout the past like a uh, week, basically. Yeah, there's been a lot. So, I mean, even if you going by what's reported, like right now there is by most estimates under a thousand, maybe at most a few thousand very far spread out people as part of the convoy. Uh, as of yesterday, there's 13 active police investigations. The police uh, of the city, the city of Ottawa said in the, uh, in a presser, we obviously know when there's like 13 active investigations and in anything this big, there's way more that's not being reported, not being investigated. Um, like they took, you know, like these things are going to, 13 is going to be a result of something bad. So some of the things that, that happened, Robert mentioned before, the alleged assault on a, a houseless person inside of Shepherds of Good Hope, uh, in which a security guard was also called a racial slur. Uh, there was a house that display, displayed a rainbow flag outside of it uh, that had harassment and poop thrown at it. Mm-hmm. Um there have we been. To, we need to get a hundred thousand people together to throw their own poop back at these people. It's the only way they'll learn. Yeah, fighting fire with fire mm-hmm. is that that expression. I'm sure just emerged from just a tossing poop at each other strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's meant for this. Yeah, there have been suggestions all over social media <laughs> channels on like, here's how you can poop in snowbanks without getting caught. Uh, businesses have been harassed. There's been violence. So like, what I think maybe some context uh, that isn't always known. In Ottawa on Saturday, and until recently, uh, dining in in restaurants uh, wasn't allowed. We were actually in a relatively strict lockdown following our Omicron wave. And a lot of people even coming like didn't know that. Like I spoke to people on Saturday who were like, hey, do you know like when the restaurants around here are open so we can like sit down for a meal? And I was like, there's no sitting down in Ottawa. So what people were doing, they were going inside cafes like Timorans and stuff. And they were just refusing to leave and eating their food there anyways. And if there was no seats, they were just like eating in line. It was also minus 28 degrees uh, in Ottawa on Saturday and very, very cold on Sunday. There was an extreme cold weather warning. Uh, so especially when people brought their kids, there wasn't a lot of other options other than like swarm the malls and swarm restaurants. And even then the mall, the main mall downtown, uh, Rideau Center was closed partway throughout the day because it was not a safe place. So uh, I already talked before about uh, routes getting blocked. Uh, also not physical violence, but honking has been keeping people awake. There's been endless honking. Uh, if you watch video footage from it, and uh, even in the background right now, I'm, I'm coming from Ottawa, like I can hear honking in my background. Uh, some people allegedly parked and then urinated on the tomb of an unknown soldier, which is, uh, um, yeah, it's a memorial. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this isn't <laughs> political is even the wrong way to describe a lot of the what's fun about this for these people. It's that they suck. Yeah, it's fucking, it's just, hooli- it's just fucking hooliganism. Uh, and that's, yeah, it's, it's fucking hooliganism. There's going to be a lot more stories coming out for sure. Uh, as things progress, um, of stories of harassment, like I've talked to people who have gotten a, a cat call in the night, uh, people getting violent altercations, uh, street fights, I'm, I'm sure are going to break out. It's kind of at a very tense point right now in Ottawa. We're at that point where we're like, okay, we're seeing some signs like poops getting thrown at the houses what's going to happen next because the police are saying they don't have a plan and the truckers are saying they're not leaving. 
What's it like outside of Ottawa, across across all the other places where there's like similar activity happening? Uh, they're all looking to us and being concerned from who I'm talking to. Uh, anti-fascists in Alberta are, are particularly concerned right now uh, with the, the coup protests. There's ongoing to, uh, it keeps seeing popping up like U.S.-Canada border activities in the same. There's a few uh, attempted convoys by uh, Americans and even before in Europe, there was a few attempted Yeah, some convoys. got turned away. Some Americans got turned yeah. away at the Canadian border because they weren't vaccinated. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> which is, you know, like, it's like, you'd think because that's the reason they're saying they're protesting, they would have remembered that and thought maybe that's going to, like, come into play. But I don't, Yeah, I don't know. Cause, I mean, know. there is a certain point where if you get enough people going, it would be interesting to see people really do just try to, like, drive through the border. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, there's been people like you look at social media channels. A lot of them saying like the borders are b- blocked right now with thousands of truckers supporting our cause. So if you saw that and you believed it, and then you went to the border and you're turned away for getting vaccinated, you might thought, well, I thought I had you know 900 people with the same cause as me, and we were ready to use force. Yeah, which begs the question: Well, what happens when you do? Exactly. I don't want to find out. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the thing. Is like if. If if they do if they did have what they say they had would they just start doing those things and not even think about it and not even think about like the politics of it they're just doing it to do it. Yeah, I, I should also mention too. We talked last time about um, uh, a Plaid Army slash Diagonal member's comments uh, that were broadcast on the news about uh, doing another quote January sixth, uh, and it came on the news today. It was first reported by Frank Magazine and I think by the Canadian Anti Hate Network. That he was arrested on firearms charges in Nova Scotia before coming here. Uh, worth noting, he was reporting live on Infowars on the Alex Jones Zone show <coughs> on Saturday mm-hmm. before this came out. And Derek Sloan. Good coverage. Yeah, Derek Sloan and Ezra Levant were also on the same program. So Robert mentioned Infowars before. That's that's great. That's what's going on there. Can you see any like beyond the uh, conservative leadership? What other kind of political implications are people thinking about in Canada? It's really tense seeing what's going to come for other cities. Also, Ottawa is expecting a second wave. Uh, some other people in other places that kind of didn't think the first one was going to be a huge success are saying, well, now that it's an occupation, we're coming. Uh, and police are even saying there's a second wave. It's a very tense place right now. We don't really know what to do. Community places are taking direct, uh, community members uh, are talking about taking direct action because it's been so long. This isn't something that the city of Ottawa is particularly used to unfortunately, in my lifetime. And so the ramifications of the future are pretty jarring. But what's alarming is how successful this occupation was with a relatively small number. I think the highest estimate, it was 18,000 people yeah. uh, into a city of over a million, which isn't really that many when you think about it. But the strategy was very, very I mean, effective. You think about how many fighters it took for Daesh to take control of Mosul. It, 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 if people, if there's not resistance, like there's only really... Mm-hmm a few areas of a city that you need to occupy in order to have a great deal of control over what can be done. Yeah. And that's the tough part is they have a lot of control over that small area and residents' lives. They don't have a lot of control over parliament, which yeah, is yeah. what they're protesting for. Yeah. I'm also interested to see, has the Canadian military said anything about these protests and the situation? So the Ottawa police chief in his press today was asked a lot about that, and he's still shying away. He's still saying he doesn't think military is the only option, uh, which if you're 
an activist on the other side of things and worried about police escalation hurting you in the future, yep, that might be a good thing to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sea of <laughs> shitty news. I'm not convinced that the military would fix the problem. I'm not either. And also, Ottawa had other police forces coming to. They said uh, they're spending $800,000 a day uh, initially to Seems just like on cost of policing. Your money's worth. Yeah. Yeah. They also said they've only, like, bylaws only had 150 tickets since this whole thing started in the occupied zone. So it's, it's unclear what a lot of them did other than, you know, keep up appearances. Uh, like, I was walking around, I saw York Region police officers walking around with their patches. That's hundreds of kilometers away. Uh, from Ottawa. So police presence, especially on the weekend, was not low. We, we had plenty. Hmm. They either didn't know what to do, thought it would die later, or a mixture of all the above. And there's been talk to uh, mixtures of some police officers have not been happy with it, but there hasn't been really anything in the news yet because no one's come forward. A lot of like tweets of like from reporters saying, I have an anonymous source in the auto police that says they wish more actions were taken. Some saying otherwise, it's not really united right now. And yeah, it's scary. Is, is, is there any counter protests being planned for Ottawa? Uh, if I knew, I'd say so, because by the time this airs, it would have happened. So I think it'd be safe to talk about. But uh, fortunately, uh, I'm not really sure. I'm not actually sure of it. I might not be the best person to ask. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're keeping an eye out. Well, the good news is that all men die. And so long as (laughs) men die, liberty will never perish. Right? That's good. It's an upside. That is an upside. That's that's a positive shot. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We'll keep an eye on this and um, what what results from it, because it's all pretty concerning um, and worth having having an eye and I'm particularly curious as to just like what kind of direct community responses to this develop because I think that's going to wind up being the only long-term solution. You know, it's kind of what people saw in Portland that you there's a there's a degree to which like the only thing that really works as a response is is outnumbering them. Yeah, on on that note, uh it might be maybe not the smoothest transition, but uh there are actually some Ottawa mutual aid funds and an advocacy group. Yes. That are doing some some cool stuff, and there's Fuck us there's, up with that. Yeah. There's too many to list for everyone. Oh well, uh, but uh, others have compiled lists, and I'm going to point to you there. So mm-hmm. Rose Ottawa, which stands for Rainbow Ottawa Student Experience, uh, serves two SLGBTQIA plus post secondary students on unceded Algonquin uh, Anishinaabe territory. And though they have closed off donations for themselves following a wonderful spike recently, they have a list of black led and black empowering organizations on their website with donation links. And you can reach that at roseottawa.org slash donations. Uh, there's a cool little Instagram account called trans is beautiful. OTT OTT stands for Ottawa. And that's all one word. It's been plugging small fundraisers for queer folk affected by the convoy, including housing support on their Instagram. Uh, again, that's trans is beautiful. OTT on Instagram. Uh, something we didn't get to talk about, uh, which is Ram Ranch, ramranch.ca, R-A-M-ranch.ca. A website was set up in the name of trolling the convoy Zello chats and has been doing a fantastic job about it. Uh, uh, there's a whole army of trolls in the trucker Zello chats, and uh, it's been really entertaining to tune into. Uh, they've compiled a list of charities on their website. You can check that out at ram-ranch.ca and clicking on the rancher's donation zone. 
And yeah. Let's where can uh, where can people find you on the internets? People can find me on the internet. I'm super active on Twitter at uh, at spineless l. The word spineless, the letter l. Fantastic. Well, hopefully, Beautiful. hopefully this gets all resolved, <laughs> and I don't need to uh, fly up to Canada to go to a protest. And if yeah. if, well, if, well, so, well, if we do, anyways. that'll be fun. I've been wanting to go to Canada for a minute. Yeah, I can we can uh, we can uh, Just, uh, take drugs at Tim Hortons. That, that would yeah. be fun. Yeah. Oh God. You know, I haven't vomited in a Tim Hortons bathroom in a long time our our local mcdonald's that uh, got famous on the internet for a fist fight that someone pulled a raccoon out of their backpack during had to actually stop being 24 hours after the mayor pleaded with them because it was using up too many police resources that is fascism uh, that is the best kind of place the, they if they close over that 911 wow. calls in a year that's so dope <laughs> oh god yeah oh <laughs> I want to I want to set up somewhere on the border in the East Coast a Tim Hortons directly across the street from a Waffle House and just let them fight. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we, we do we we do miss that here. That's that's something you you'll have to bring that you have to bring that over. Bring the Waffle House vibes over. All you need to do is watch a man get stabbed, and then spiritually, you're at a Waffle House. And that and that and that ties back to the future of the convoy. You're right. Well, that 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 does it for us today, everybody. We will see you later. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources. Thanks for listening. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.